Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. My name is Rick Archer. Buddha at the Gas Pump is an ongoing series of interviews with spiritually awakening people. There have been about 350 of them now, and if you'd like to check out previous ones, go to badgap.com and look under the past interviews menu where you'll see them all categorized in various ways. This program is made possible by the support of appreciative listeners and viewers, so if you appreciate it and feel like supporting it, there is a... Um, donate button on the site, and uh, I really appreciate those who have helped to support it. Speaking of past interviews, my guest today is David Godman, and I did one, one with him a couple of years ago, which I just listened to this past week, and uh, I thought it was really quite good. Um, we really covered a lot of ground and had, had all kinds of interesting conversations, so if you like this one, you might want to also go back and check out the other one. David, in case you don't know, has lived in India since 1976, mostly in Tiruvannamalai, Tamil Nadu. He spent his time there studying and practicing the teachings of Sri Ramana Maharshi. His anthology of Ramana Maharshi's teachings, Be As You Are, is probably the most widely read book on Sri Ramana's teachings. During his 14-year stay at Ramana Ashram, 1978 through 92, he managed the ashram's library, cataloged its archives, and recorded the stories and experiences of devotees who had had direct contact with Sri Ramana. David is the authorized biographer of two devotees of Ramana Maharshi, Lakshmana Swami and Papaji, who realized the self in Sri Ramana's presence and who later went on to become gurus themselves. He has written and published several other books that contain first-person accounts of devotees who moved closely with Sri Ramana Maharshi and who were transformed by his power and presence. Let's see, then it, David's uh, bio goes on here for quite a bit, but I'm going to... You, you, you can skip the rest. Yeah, I'll, I'll be publishing all this on the BatGap website so people can read that to get more background on you. So today David and I are going to be talking about a number of things. Um, we're going to be talking about uh, several of Ramana's disciples, Maurice Friedman, Muruganar, and Mastan, whom David wanted to speak about. And there are some questions that people have sent in. Perhaps they'll send in more, and we'll be covering a lot of different topics. We'll see where the conversation goes. So thanks for doing this, David. Appreciate it. Thank you for inviting. David's in Colorado at the moment on his annual pilgrimage to the United cold, States. Cold places. Yeah. <laughs> so you escape the heat. Is that what you're mm -hmm. doing over here? Oh, good idea. So where should we start? Where would you like to start? Well, you ask me and I'll reply oh. if I can. Okay. So let's start by talking about these people you wanted to talk about. I was thinking as I was reading about them and listening to you say things about them that as we do this, we want to make this relevant to people's current lives. So it's interesting to talk about, you know, people who were around Ramana and what they experienced and what they were like. But whenever we can, let's try to extract from that points which would be pertinent to contemporary seekers. I think we won't have any trouble doing that. So why don't we start with Maurice Friedman? Who is he? Maurice Friedman is one of the most extraordinary people I've ever come across. And virtually nothing is known about him. And because of his connection with uh, Ramana Maharshi, Krishnamurti, Gandhi, Nisargadatta, the Dalai Lama, I kind of view him in my own mind as a kind of forest gump of 20th century spirituality. He was in all the right places, in all the right times, to get the maximum benefit from interaction with some of the greats of 
Indian spirituality. And at the end of his career, he was just about the only person that Nisargadatta certified as a jnani. So in between all these trips to India's major gurus, he was a Gandhian, he worked for the uplift of the poor in India, he worked with Tibetan refugees, he edited extraordinary books. I Am That is probably one of the all-time spiritual classics. This man for me is, how shall we say it, a shining beacon of how devotees could and should be with their teachers. He was just an absolutely extraordinary man. And I think, oh, he went out of his way to cover his tracks, to hide what he'd actually accomplished in his life. So I've enjoyed the detective work of looking in obscure places and dig digging out stuff that he personally tried to hide, not because it was embarrassing, but because he didn't like to take credit for what he'd done. So I, I see this as an opportunity to wave the Morris flag and say, look, look, this is one of the greatest devotees, sadaks, seekers from the West who's been to India in the last hundred years, and I think more people should know about him. Yeah. I remember, well, there were so many stories. I read the, the thing that you wrote about him. He was from Poland originally, mm -hmm. and um, he emigrated to France to run a factory and, and discovered Krishnamurti there, and he saw Gandhi in Paris. And I saw one of his letters. He discovered Krishnamurti when he was a teenager in Warsaw, and he spent his entire allowance for the week on a second-hand French copy of a Krishnamurti book he found on the sidewalk. He started extraordinarily early and never looked back. Yeah, and then he was... Um, he was recruited by uh, an official in Mysore to run a factory mm -hmm. in Bangalore, came to India. He eventually became a sadhu in his own right, although he was a sadhu who perhaps never quite renounced women. There was somebody he wanted to, <laughs> <laughs> people he wanted to marry and so on. He was also extremely inventive. Like he, he, when he met Gandhi, he watched Gandhi spinning on his spinning wheel. He thought, eh, I could invent a better one than this. And he actually sure. came up with a better spinning wheel and presented it to right. Gandhi. He, uh, he walked into, he met Gandhi, this is the, one of the Forrest Gump stories, he was running his electrical uh, factory in Paris, he was walking down the street and he saw a bit of a crowd at one of the train stations, wandered over to see what it was, and there was Mahatma Gandhi on, on the platform in Paris of all places, changing trains. Uh, in those days if you wanted to go from London, he'd just been to a, a conference in London, back to India, the quickest way was to get a train across Europe and then get a boat in Greece. Mm. But for that he had to change trains in Paris, and Maurice just happened to be on the platform for the two minutes that Gandhi spent in Paris to watch him change trains. And he said, I looked at this man, I fell in love with him immediately, I fell in love with the idea of India, and I just knew I had to go. So the first chance he got, the chief minister of Mysore state, which was an independent country in those days, came to his office to headhunt him, to run a big factory in Bangalore and when, when Maurice agreed, the chief minister said, when can you come? He said, I'll get my coat, I'm coming with you now. And that, <laughs> and, and that was it, he went off to India. Just with his coat, basically. Yeah, with his coat. <laughs> uh, that's amazing. And, you know, he spent many years living as a sadhu, living under trees, sleeping on the ground. Um, um, I, I think I also recall that when he was running this factory, he, he wouldn't take a salary. All, he, he put all of his salary into a trust fund or a bank account. The chief minister wanted him to be the modernizing front of Mysore state. 
So he was very upset when his Western factory manager turned up for work in orange robes. <laughs> and not, not only did he turn up for work in orange robes, he went out to beg his food in the evening. And from the workers, he was attempting to oversee during the day. So the chief minister said, we, we can't have this. It's bad for discipline for you to be dependent on your own workers to feed you in the evening because you've got to boss them around the next day. <laughs> so he and he said, contractually, I'm obliged to pay you. I'll put your salary in escrow and in an account. It's yours whenever you want it. Morris never touched it. He lived off the food he begged. And the deal was whenever some VIP came to see what a great modern state Mysore state was, Morris had to put on a suit and tie. But when no, no VIPs were coming, he was allowed to run the place in his orange robes and go out and beg for his food on the side. <laughs> and when he finally left the factory, he distributed his salary, which had been accumulated, to all the workers and didn't, mm -hmm. didn't yeah, take he it did, with him. He didn't, he didn't touch it. He cashed it all in and gave equal shares to all the workers in the factory and took off to live under a tree in Maharashtra. Interesting. At what stage did he interact with Ramana? Uh, Bangalore is quite close to Tiruvannamalai, mm -hmm. and the, the main junction to get a train to Bangalore is called Katpadi. It's about two and a half hours north of Tiruvannamalai. He said, I was standing on the Katpadi platform waiting for my Bangalore train, which wasn't coming. And then on the next track, he heard some Indian railway official shout, Tiruvannamalai, Tiruvannamalai. And something in his head remembered that he had read this book about a famous Swami in Tiruvannamalai. And he thought, why not? It's close. So he called over and said, when is the train leaving? The man said five minutes. So he just got on it and went to Tiruvannamalai. And at that point, he realized he'd forgotten the name of the Swami in Tiruvannamalai. <laughs> he just remembered the town. So he got in a bullock cart and said, you know, any famous Swamis in this town, if there are, take me to see him. And of course, in those days, Ramana was number one. Everybody knew him. So he arrived at Ramanashram. And like many foreigners of his era, he tried to clump in in his boots and got turfed out and had to take his shoes off, came in again. And he said, I'd read the book about him. I'd read a biography. It didn't impress me. I didn't like his teachings. I didn't like the descriptions. I didn't like the way the book was written. And even when I went to the ashram, I was in a slightly negative mood. But he said, the moment I sat down in that hall, he said, my mind stopped for the first time in my life. He said, that the needle on my mind omitic went, went back to zero and it stayed there. Mm. And he said, I don't care what else is going on here. I don't care what this man teaches. I don't care about the rituals, all the stuff I don't like. He said, this is, this, this is the place I need to be. So from that moment on, he came every weekend. David, for, for the viewers and listeners, David has uh, created a whole series of um, videos about Ramana and about the people who hung around him and about the kind of like various important places in Tiruvannamalai where, where Ramana lived and I, I've, I've listened to a whole lot of these over the last week or so. So I just want to mention that well, I'll be linking to that series from the website but it really gives you a flavor of, of what life was like around him and so many interesting anecdotes. You created that fairly recently didn't you? I did the talks in the uh, beginning of 2014, mm -hmm. and then I ended up having to edit them myself, and I did most of that last year. It's really fascinating. I mean, if, if one has never lived around a guru, there's so many f 
aspects of life living around a guru that are unconventional and that uh, that kind right. of break your boundaries in different mm -hmm. ways. And I think you did a good job conveying a lot of that. Thank you. Yeah, and, yeah, and giving a flavor for some of the characters, you know, and and uh, the extreme devotion that a lot of people felt. That, that's an right. that's an interesting mm -hmm. theme, which often is not talked about too much in contemporary spirituality devotion. But but a lot of the people that um, that can you know contemporary seekers admire and and you know say they are following such as Ramana and Papaji and so on were extremely devotional people I think there's a saying in Tamil Nadu your guru is mother father guru god he's he's everything all the relationships you have with all those normally discrete entities in your life they all get rolled into one and I, I, ideally you surrender yourself completely to that figure and his, historically in Tamil Nadu, you read poems by the famous ancient saints who are ecstatic that they've put themselves in slavery to God. The idea of being in bondage, servitude to God is a desirable trait amongst uh, many of the religious traditions in South India. And if you actually make it to the point where you've become God's slave and you have no will of your own, then you've made it. That, that's uh, a very popular accepted goal. Mm. I remember just the other day listening to your description of Papaji and he, he um, someone asked him what his re greatest regret was or something and he said, mm. well, I, I regret that my health is such uh, that I can no longer prostrate myself fully at the at the feet of my guru, you know, mm -hmm. at the photo of, of Sri Ramana, when I get up in the morning, you know, I can't even put my pants on anymore because I'm too feeble, but uh, mm -hmm. I really miss being able to do that. <laughs> I love that. Um, I asked him, I said, have you got any regrets in your life? Because his basic line was that if you're in this state, then you don't choose what you do next. Somehow the self compels you to say and do the things you do. So the whole concept of regrets would imply making a bad choice. So I was just kind of playing devil's advocate a bit, saying, Any, anything that you've done that you regret? And of course he said, no, no, of course not. Taking this advice line that if you don't make choices, you can't have regrets. Right. And then about five minutes later, he looked across the room and he said, one big regret. I can't even put my pants on by myself anymore. I can't prostrate on the floor. When I, when I could move properly, every morning I would get up, lie full length on on the floor in front of my guru's picture. That's how I started every day. Let's get back to Maurice Friedman, but let's dwell on that point just one little bit more. What do you feel like the, the role or the significance or the importance of that kind of attitude is for a spiritual seeker? Morris, for me, exemplified I mean, that um, attitude of prostration and surrender. Uh, Morris, I don't think, had this. Morris mm -hmm. was a karma yogi. Mm -hmm. I think of, of all the people who went to India that I know about, many of them, they had some devotion, they wanted to do inquiry, get enlightened. Morris genuinely felt that the world was in a bad place and that he had the talent to do a lot about it. And he was always, I wouldn't say on the lookout, but every opportunity he took, to improve the lot of poor working people in India, he took it. Mm. So he wasn't a contemplative navel gazer. This was an extraordinary man of action who throughout his life was always looking to 
use his talents, his skills to make life better for other people. That brings up a point in itself. Some people are karma yogis by nature. Some are mm -hmm. more bhaktas. You know, they're going to have a more devotional bent, mm -hmm. and and so on. So one size does not fit all. Uh, what, what was Maurice's relationship with Ramana that uh, that's significant that you'd like to tell us? I mean, did he get did he get enlightened uh, with Ramana? Maurice Maurice came to India around 1933. Mm -hmm started his factory and he showed up at Ramanashram in 1934. He had a very, very strong urge to become a sannyasi and he asked Bhagavan for formal initiation. Bhagavan never initiated anybody. Mm. So his permanent unflinching advice was whatever circumstances you're in, make the best of them. If you have a job, if you have a family, do your work in that context. He never ever gave anyone permission to renounce the world. So like several other people, Morris wouldn't give up. He went off to see Swami Ramdas and Swami Ramdas, that's the Kerala man, he initiated him and he took sannyas under the name Bharatananda, the, the bliss of India. So I think, I think always there was this strong desire. He came, he saw the poverty, the poor conditions in India and he just knew, he just knew he had the talent to do something. The, the way he looked at Gandhi's wheel Mm -hmm. and said, Mr. Gandhi, I can make you a better wheel, and went out and did it on the spot. This is pure Morris. Morris was a do-it-now bulldozer. Wherever he went, he saw a problem, he addressed it, and he fixed it. And that's one of the things I like. No dithering, no committees, no consultations. He just went out, brought a better wheel back in. Gandhi tried it and said, this is better, thank you very much. This will be my personal wheel from now on. Go and see my people and make this the standard model for everybody in India and I'll keep this one for myself. So that was just one of the extraordinary things he did off the cuff in an afternoon. Yeah. And that, that, that was the theme of his life. Another thing he did off the cuff is while he was on his deathbed. Uh, <laughs> his story, yes. Yeah, you, you, you tell the story rather than me. Man. So uh, I've been poking around looking for Morris. Everybody has a really extraordinary Morris story. Nobody has a lot. He, he was very careful about talking about himself, letting things slip. But I have had a letter from his final secretary and uh, Morris fell and had a bad accident. Uh, he fractured his hip and the doctors came and said, he's not going to make it more than a few days. All his organs are failing one by one. Just give him, give him some painkiller, palliative care. We can't operate, he's in too feeble a state. So one of the organs that failed was his kidney, I assume, or his bladder, and he needed to have a catheter. And I don't know if you've had a catheter. I know my dad had a catheter. <laughs> and when I went to see him in hospital, he said, don't make any jokes, laughing hurts too much. <laughs> so it's not a very nice thing, even with an anesthetic. And I've watched friends have this in India, and it's a bit brutal and often without an anesthetic. So Maurice, of course, had a fractured hip. And you, you have to keep still when these pipes are going in. And when his bladder had been emptied, he said, is that what people have to put up with having a catheter? This is terrible. Bring me my Stanley knife. Bring me some plastic tubes. I'm going to make a better catheter before I die. <laughs> so his final days on planet Earth, he's lying on a bed with a fractured hip that no one wants to operate on. His organs are failing one by one. And the last thing he wants to do is make a better catheter so that other people won't have to suffer the way he did. That's Whether great. he did or not, I don't know, but that's just so Morris. Ah. So, um, 
I think I gathered from reading your stuff that um, Ramana acknowledged Maurice as, as oh, have, having been self-realized. Yes. No, no, I have to backtrack on this. Sure. So he went off to see Swami Ramdas in uh -huh. Kerala to get the initiation. And Ramdas took one look at him and said, this is your final birth, mm. which was quite a bold prediction. This was a Western man in a business suit who just walked in on his first day. So Morris came back to Ramanashram and everybody there laughed at him because all they could see was the, the man in the business suit. But Ma Ramana could see there was something different and special about this man. Um, he said that Morris had been in India before. That was something that Ramana was quite careful in saying. He said, he's one of us, he's been here before. But he didn't say he was enlightened. And his relationship with Ramana was a bit rocky. I said Morris was a bit of a bulldozer. Wherever he went, he thought he knew best and what people should do. And Ra Raman was one of the few people he couldn't bulldoze. He was trying to give him a better diet, trying to make people look after him better. And Raman was basically saying, mind your own business. That's not what you're here for. So it wasn't until... Oh, one thing I must say. I, I know a woman who was with Morris in the 1970s, and I had a discussion with her. And I said, I've read some summaries that... Morris gave of Krishnamurti talks that he attended in the 1950s in Madras, as it was then. He gave summaries to post out to all the people all over the world who couldn't come. And I said, you know, Morris's summaries are actually more interesting, more comprehensible, and I get more from them from reading Krishnamurti books. These are such excellent summaries, I wish they'd been published. And she said he always had that talent. He had, he had an ability to go to a teacher, listen to what that teacher was saying, summarize it and explain it, often in a better, more concise, more accessible way than the teacher themselves. And then she absolutely astounded me. She said, Morris told me that after he'd been going to Raman Ashram for a year, Ramana himself said, you can explain my teachings to people who come who don't know Tamil. So Morris was actually designated to give summaries of certain aspects of the teaching. I don't know anybody else in the entire history of Raman Ashram who got the job while Ramana was still there of explaining the teachings in Bhagavan's presence. This, this is an extraordinary endorsement of his state and his ability to give very good, very concise accounts of what the teacher was saying. And I think the same thing happened when he went to see Nisargadatta. Um, he, Ganeshan, uh, Ramana's grandnephew told me this, that Maurice had told him, he said, I heard about this man so I went to see him and I was taking notes outside his beady stall in, in Bombay, writing down and after a few days, Maharaj called me over and said, what are you writing? So Mar Morris showed him what he was writing and Maharaj was so happy with the quality of his understanding, his summaries and his notes, he invited him in. He, he became in a way the official disciple, recorder, editor, compiler and the fruits of his work were I Am That, which is an all-time classic. So he did have this ability to absorb teachings and let's say regurgitate them but disseminate them in a way that everyone went wow that's the perfect explanation even though it may not be the original words they were just so good people said that's even better than the original teacher <laughs> did he speak what indian languages did he speak uh he worked in indian villages uh, i'm guessing well he definitely knew hindi and i know i've seen a um an article about his publisher in bombay when Morris went there to, with the first draft of I Am That, 
saying, stop everything, stop everything, this is very Morris, cancel all your other projects, we, mu we must do this book. And the publisher was called Dickshit, said, but Morris, you don't know Marathi. I mean, how are you going, no, don't worry, don't worry, that's minor detail, minor detail. <laughs> so Marathi is the local vernacular language of Bombay, but everybody there speaks Hindi. So I think Morris was hacking his way through conversations in Hindi, but I'm not sure he ever learned good enough Marathi to have deep conversations, but between you know, between the two of them, they got the point across. What was Nisargadatta speaking? He was speaking Marathi. Okay. So he was a very uneducated man. I think he hardly ever went to school. Uh, he had a very rough, coarse village accent and village uh, humor. And yeah. he, I, I saw educated Marathis come in to talk to him, and they couldn't understand the word he was saying because ah. he was 80 years old, had a thick village accent, and wouldn't put his false teeth in. So it was... <laughs> It was, it was quite, a, quite a task to actually get sense out of him in the final years. And the, the people who were the regular translators, I think they were tuned into his, his accent and his lack of teeth and they, they got it. <laughs> um, so what else would you like to tell us about Maurice before we go on to anyone else? Can I tell you the story of, his, of how he went to do his project in Aund? Sure. Uh, this, this is... Well, there's two. I must tell you about the Dalai Lama also. Can, do, do we have time for this? We have plenty of time. We have a couple right. of hours. Okay, yeah. so after he left his factory, the reason he left was that the son of a Raja in a state that was close to Bombay came to ask for advice on how his father's state could be improved. Maurice went off, and at this point, the Gandhian idea, political idea, was that villages should be self-governing, they shouldn't have higher hierarchies of people telling them what to do. Middle and higher management was out. Gandhi had a notion of this thing called Panchayat Raj. The Panchayats were the village councils and the Raj means rule. So he wanted India to be a confederation of self-governing villages with no higher management sucking out taxes and spending it on wasteful projects higher than the village level. So Morris went off, and this is a typical Morris story again. He walked in to see the Raja and the Raja said, Mr. Friedman, we've hired you as a consultant. How can we improve my kingdom? <laughs> and Morris said, the only thing you can usefully do is abdicate. You're a parasite. <laughs> <laughs> You're sucking up all the revenue from your villages. You live in a big palace. Your, your villages are poor. You don't help them. You just collect their taxes and live, live a high life. What you need to do is abdicate, but not in favor of your son or anybody else. Abdicate in favor of the village councils of your realm. And amazingly, Morris was a very persuasive man. He actually persuaded this Raja to abdicate. And so far as I know, it's the only instance in Indian history where a ruler has abdicated in favor of his people rather than a general or a son or anybody else. Because this was a Gandhian project, Morris wanted Gandhi himself to endorse it and co-sign the constitution with the Raja. So Morris went off to see Gandhi in his ashram. He explained what was going on. The prince was there. And Gandhi said, it's a very nice idea, but you can't cut people loose like this. So if you want my endorsement of this project, you both have to agree to live there for a number of years. You have to teach these people how to be independent, how to look after themselves. And then he jabbed his finger at the, the Raja's son. And he said, you, you can't live in that palace. You're going there to try and convince these village people that village life is a good, viable way of living. 
and they're not going to respect you if you rock up every day in a big car from the palace. Build yourself a mud hut in one of these villages, live there for 10 years and demonstrate to your people that that kind of life can be a, a rewarding, productive way of life. So Morris and Appapanti was called, looked at each other and they said, okay, so Gandhi signed and then Morris and Appa went back to this state and Morris said, the first night I slept under a tree, I didn't even have a house to live in. And slowly, slowly, they taught all these people the basics of self-governance. Morris was very practical. He taught them carpentry, plumbing, engineering, all the things they needed to know. But the one part of this project that really impresses me was that when the central government was dissolved, there was a what to do with the people in the central government prison. Nobody wanted them. So Morris said, parole them all out to me, put them on personal probation parole to me, I'll be responsible for them. So he went off and built a village with the aid of these prisoners. He taught them how to build houses, he taught them agriculture, he taught them all the skills they needed to live independent lives, and the recidivism rate was zero. Not a single one of these people ever needed to go back to jail. And I've seen interviews with these people filmed interviews in the 90s, they were old men, and they were, they were crying. They just said, Maurice saved us. And in, this was such a famous project. In the 1960s, they made a, Hollywood, a Bollywood film about it, and Maurice was hired as uh, the technical advisor, so he went down to the set and made sure everything was properly recorded. And then the director said, thank you very much, I'll give you a credit at the end as technical advisor. And Maurice said, no thanks, don't put my name on it, this is very Maurice. And the director said, of course I'm putting your name on it. This is your project. You're the technical advisor. Of course your name's going on. And Morris said, well, in that case, I'm going back to the Bombay, Bombay High Court to take out an injunction against you, <laughs> forbidding you to put my name on this project. This, this is what the way Morris was. He went through his whole life doing absolutely extraordinary things. And then when he'd done them, trying to cover his tracks and pretending later they were nothing to do with him. That's pretty he's, neat. He's, he's a man who just didn't want people to know all the good things he's done. That's another thing I admire about him. Yeah. You know, some people might be wondering, well, you know, what's the spiritual significance of all this? But I think that by, by, by their fruits you shall know them. Maurice, yeah, that's Maurice, the Maurice had whole orchards of fruits. This is a man, any one of 20 things he did in his life, that would be the, the number one thing on your CV for most people. And he just had so many things that it's just unbelievable the things that he did and accomplished. May I talk about the Dalai Lama briefly? Anything, you don't need to right. ask permission. Just well, keep, I'm on a roll about Morris. Keep, Morris keep, is keep one going. of my heroes. Morris is one of my heroes. Go yeah. Morris. Um, <laughs> so in the late 1950s, the Chinese were slowly annexing Tibet and it was quite clear that at some point they'd take over and the Dalai Lama was making uh, noises about moving to India. Mm. He was in no. Boulder the other day, did you see? Sorry? Did you see him in Boulder the other day? Dalai I went there two days ago. I stood in line to ask a question about Morris. I've been trying to, I've been trying to talk to the Dalai Lama about Morris for years, but his, his committee won't let me in. So ah. I thought I'll stand in the public line. Mm -hmm. And he answered four questions and I was number 10 in line. So uh. I didn't get front. <laughs> anyway, so uh, Morris was personal friends with the Prime Minister of India. And the Prime Minister didn't Nehru didn't want to provoke a war with China. He thought there might be one, but he didn't want to be the person who made a big gesture which the Chinese would react badly to. So 
Nehru said, sorry, I can't let this man in. It's too provocative. The Chinese will regard it as tantamount to harboring an enemy. I can't do it. So Maurice pestered and pestered and pestered. And in the end, he, he got Nehru to sign off on a deal that the Dalai Lama could come to India on condition that he didn't come as a political leader. He was allowed to be the spiritual leader of the Tibetans in exile. He could do pastoral work in India, but he wasn't allowed to make any political speeches. If he wanted to do that, he had to go somewhere else. So that, Maurice said, that's okay. You remember I told you about the prince, the prince, the son of the Raja who abdicated. Mm -hmm. He joined the diplomatic service after independence and he was the Indian government's representative in Sikkim. So Maurice thought as a final fig leaf to pretend that he's not fleeing to India, we, we'll arrange for the Dalai Lama to cross Tibet and go into Sikkim. And it, he was welcomed there by Appa Pant, Maurice's friend, and put in one of the local monasteries. And Maurice also sent one of his Polish friends, Uma Devi, to look after him. She became the Dalai Lama's cook and she looked after him for several years. After the Dalai Lama did come to India, Maurice ran all over India, arm twisting his rich friends, getting money, land to establish all the Tibetan colonies in India. And Uma Devi, his friend, ended up running many of the refugee camps in and around Dharamsala. So I saw an old YouTube film of the Dalai Lama in Poland giving a speech there and he stood up and said, I want to talk to you today about the two greatest Polish people I've ever met. And he talked about Maurice and Uma and everyone looked around like, who's he? We've never heard of him. So that, that was, <laughs> Maurice has no recognition anywhere in the world, despite these extraordinary things. No one, no one knows anything about him. Sorry, I, I got to tell one more story. Yeah, keep going. So, so Apupant's daughter, I called her up and I said, Maurice came to see you and your dad. Did he tell you any good stories? This is just what you do. You just keep calling and bit by bit, all these amazing stories come in. She said, oh, we were just young girls. Our job was just to serve the tea and coffee. This was men's business. We didn't, we weren't allowed to sit and listen to high politics in those days. And I said, come on, they, was, they were speaking English. You were in the room. You must have heard some good stuff. And then finally, reluctantly, she said, oh, I remember my father once asked Maurice how his recent trip to Russia was. And this was the first time I discovered he went to Russia. I think he was on an economic delegation. He was a member of the Congress party and he probably spoke Russian. So he was a good person to send along. And I said, well, what did he say about Russia? He said uh, he, he went to the Kremlin to meet Khrushchev and he wagged his finger under Khrushchev's nose and said, Mr. Khrushchev, you're not a real communist, you're a fake. You're, li <laughs> you're living off the fat of the land. You're not a real communist. So the same lecture he gave to the Raja in India, he just walked into the Kremlin and wagged his finger at Khrushchev and was probably lucky not to be sent off to the Gulag. But that was Maurice. Maurice had no filters. If he thought you were not a useful member of society, you'd be find out very quickly. <laughs> very bold man. <laughs> right. What was this about orange juice with, with Maurice? <laughs> right. This, this was Maurice being his typical bulldozer himself. So he walked in to see Ramana and thought, this man's not eating properly. I'll, I'll, I'll put him on a better diet. So he went off, uh, bought a couple of oranges, hand squeezed them, brought them in, put them on a tray and said, you need more vitamins, kind of eat, drink, drink this. And Bhagavan, of course, never consumed anything that he couldn't share equally with everybody in the hall. So he waved around saying, what about these 200 people here? As a kind of 
way of saying no thank you but to Morris that was just a challenge he went to town and bought every single orange he could find <laughs> and, and hand squeezed 200 glasses of orange juice and had them all kind of paraded in on a big tray he gave everybody he gave the 200 people a glass each and then he gave Bhagavan his glass and said now you can't refuse everybody else has had a glass first <laughs> and Bhagavan said okay you've made your point I'll take it but don't do this again it's not necessary so that, that's just the way he was he was he was just a man who saw things, thought they needed to be changed, and just took action and got them done. Yeah, so I, I suppose the you know, significance of our talking about him is that he's an excellent example of a karma yogi, somebody who puts his money where his mouth is. Who Exactly. He, he had a dual strand, so while all this was going on, he had an intense relationship with Ramana, with Krishnamurti, with Nisargadatta, and I think I think he got it finally with Nisargadatta. So I'm not saying his karma yoga got him enlightened, but that, that was just a, an unquenchable thirst he had to make the world a better place. But as a kind of parallel internal practice strand of his life, he was going to see all the big name Advaita gurus in India sitting with them, getting their darshans, listening to their teachings. And he got it. He definitely got it with Nisargadatta. Yeah. Can I, can I tell you about how I asked Nisargadatta about this. Sure. Anyway, so he was cranky, feisty. He was always complaining what terrible people we were. Oh, why do I waste my time talking to you people? Nobody listens to me. No, 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 sorry. Um, no, f the first question was, I said, uh, uh, in all the years you've been teaching, how many people have actually got enlightened? And he said, what business is that of yours? <laughs> I said, uh, well, it's a bit like a lottery. If, uh, you know, if you know there's a hundred winning tickets out of a thousand, you think, oh, that's not bad. But if it's one in a million, you're a bit discouraged. So I, mean, I just want to know what the success rate is here. And he said, none of your business. How will that fact help you in any way whatsoever? So I said, OK. And then a, a few days later, he was saying, oh, why, why do I waste my time talking to you people? Nobody listens. Nobody understands. So I thought, OK, let's try again. I said, in, in all the years you've been teaching, how many people have actually understood what you were saying and experienced it? And he said, one, Maurice Friedman. And that, that was the only public certification I ever heard him make, except that every morning he did a very elaborate puja to his guru and all the gurus in his lineage. And in his puja room, he had photos of all the big name saints that weren't in his lineage. Ramana was there, Ramakrishna was there. So first he put a blob of kum kum on his guru's head, all the people in his lineage, and then he'd go around the room and put a blob of kum kum on all the people he thought were worthy of kum kum because they were enlightened even though they weren't in his lineage. And Maurice had two photos in that room. I think he was the only person who managed to get two photos. And every morning, both Maurice's photos got the kum kum treatment. So this, this wasn't something he was willing to, he doubled down on that kind of, Morris was the one person he was satisfied in his life. Interesting. Here's something you sent to me. You said, if you want an entertaining digression here, I would be happy to talk about Gandhi's attempts to meet with Sri Ramana and how one of his leading followers prevented it from happening. Uh, if we take this side trip, I should also like to talk about Gandhi's spiritual status with stories from Papaji, Ramana and Lakshmana Swami, all of whom had a high regard for him. 
He is primarily known in the West as a politician, freedom fighter, and social reformer. His elevated spiritual state tends to be ignored. But did I shift gears too quickly there? I didn't mean to just that's, that's so, suddenly no, abandon no. Uh, Maurice. We, we, we can abandon Maurice. We might get back to him. We might not. But that, that's something, again, that's not really well known. And there's some fascinating stories. I think a good starting point is the, the 1983 Oscar-winning movie Gandhi, mm. which is a great movie, except that when he gets shot, he goes, oh my God, or God, God, like this. Right. And that completely misrepresents Gandhi. He said Ram, didn't he? He said Ram, Ram. Right. Ram, 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 Ram was Gandhi's mantra. Mm -hmm. And the different, oh God means, oh, what a surprise. Oh, what a shock. I've just been shot. Yeah. <laughs> Whereas if somebody shoots you fatally and you've got two seconds to live, and the first thing that stirs out of you is repeating the name of God, then you're fa fairly well established in that state of the mantra of the Japa. It, it's, it's an acquiescence, a state of surrender. In his final moment, he repeated the name of his God, became one with his God and passed away. So the God-God story really is the one thing in that movie that really annoys me every time I watch it. So one thing before we go to Gandhi at Ramanashram, Remember, uh, just an aside, uh, I was helped to teach the course in which Deepak Chopra learned to meditate right around that time, early 80s, and before he was famous and everything. And, and he made that same comment. He said they, that that movie really blew it, you know, because they, right. they missed the whole point there when he was shot. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Go ahead. Continue. So, um, Papaji didn't like Gandhi's politics in the 1920s. He wasn't a Gandhian. He was trying to throw the British out by force, but he had a great respect for him for his spiritual state. And in 1947, after partition was agreed, Gandhi was absolutely against partition. He said, it's like splitting my body in half. I don't want it. He was sidelined in the Congress party and he was conducting prayer meetings in Madras as it was then. And Papaji was working in Chennai. So he went along to the prayer meetings and somehow ended up being Gandhi's minder or attendant, which is an interesting connection. And he said, one day I was sitting there with Gandhi. We were just by ourselves and Gandhi was spinning his thread as usual. And he said, I heard the sound of Ram, 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 Ram. And I, I looked around. Nobody else was there. The radio wasn't on. So I, I, I fine tuned my antenna a little bit. And he said, I was astonished to discover that Gandhi's body was actually vibrating with the sound of Ram, but at a very subtle level. Hmm. And he said, that's an absolutely extraordinarily elevated state of spirituality, where he called it ajapa, spontaneous japa, where the japa has so permeated your being, your body, that when you're engaged in a task, the rams in your body have kind of stored up and they're spontaneously chanting themselves and radiating off at a subtle level from your body. Interesting. You know, Gandhi's another example of you shall know them by their fruits. I mean, exactly. uh, just um, someone with that degree of determination and dedication right. and yep. commitment and mm -hmm. absolute, he changed the whole destiny of a nation in, right. this, in this very, very mm -hmm. simple way. And th that kind of thing is symptomatic of a very significant inner state. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Ramana often read things that Gandhi had written. He was a prolific writer of articles and they got published. And once or twice, he would read out something Gandhi had said with absolute 
unwavering approval. He said, yes, this is the true state. This is the state of the self. So he, he had an extraordinary high regard for Gandhi's spiritual state. And when Congress people came to Bhagavan saying, how can we help the struggle for independence? He said, whatever you desire and work towards means you've got the I am the body identification. He said, be like Gandhi, have no expectations, no desire to accomplish anything. Be in that inner state where you get moved by the grace within rather than your desire for a personal goal. Even if it's a laudable one, even if it's something that should happen, don't go into this work with the idea, I must accomplish this or this needs to be done. He said, do the work without any, any desire, any feeling that this is something that must happen. And he said, then that's the right attitude. So that, that was his attitude to social work. He said, don't think that you are in a position to help other people. That creates a dualistic dichotomy. In fact, he said once, he said, any teacher who thinks that they can help somebody else isn't a jnani. He said, the, the jnani's unwavering position is that there are no others and there's nobody else to help. And by abiding in that state, you generate a kind of force field around yourself. He called it the sanity. He said that sanity will do your work for you. It will help everybody. It's the best benefit that anyone can receive. But as soon as you get to the idea, this must happen, I must accomplish this. He said, that's, the, that's not the jnani's position. Abide in the self, be the self, and all these things will unfold automatically. You have control over action alone, never over its fruits. Exactly. From, from exactly. The but of course, it's paradoxical because Maurice and Gandhi and, and others have had tremendous influence in helping others. And it, and it may appear that that was their primary motivation, but if they weren't attached to the fruits of action, then there was a much more sort of profound right. inner orientation mm -hmm. going on. So I think Gandhi and Maurice were quite similar in that they had a very strong uplift streak. They could see all the poor conditions that Indians were living in. Mm -hmm. They had different ways of changing that. They had lots of arguments about process, but the basic we need to help strand was there in both of them. And on the side, almost secretly, they both had this incredible passion for God, for liberation, for getting to the point of individual transcendence. And I, I think they both attained this. Gandhi, of course, was far more famous because of his political adventures. But they both had this parallel lives of being outwardly devoted to social uplift and inwardly devoted to transcendence. Can I get back to Raman Ashram? Sorry, yeah, please. Uh -huh. So Gandhi came on a trip to Tiruvannamalai and uh, everybody was very excited. They thought he might come into Raman Ashram and he was going to give a political speech about a five-minute walk from Ramana's ashram, and he had to drive past the main gate. So Anamale Swami told me this story. He said, we all, we all went, Bhagavan didn't come down. He didn't care about any of this. He sat on his sofa. We all went down to the gate, and we could see Gandhi's car slowing down as it came to the gate. And he said, I put my palms over my head to greet Gandhi. And he said, Gandhi, Gandhi did the same back to me. I got my little pranam from Gandhi. And then the man who was organizing the trip was a big Congress politician called Rajagopalachari, and he waved the driver on. He said, don't stop, speed up, speed up. So Gandhi thought, well, that's one chance missed. And he was scheduled to give a 10-minute speech. So Gandhi's next plan was to 
give only a five minute speech and then rush in through the back gate of Raman Ashram and have a quick darshan and then go off to his next meeting. And when Rajagopalachari saw what was happening, he physically prevented him. He, he stopped and argued saying, we haven't got time, we haven't got time. And by arguing for five minutes, in oh. the end, there, there wasn't time. What a shame. So, so Anamale Swami came back. Everybody was very disappointed. Everyone was looking forward to this great meeting between Gandhi and Bhagavan. And Anamale Swami said, Bhagavan, why, why wouldn't they let him in? What's the problem? And Bhagavan laughed and said, they're probably afraid you'll go into Samadhi and forget all about politics and stay. <laughs> which, which may have happened. I think they wanted their, they wanted their talisman active. They didn't want him sitting, sitting in a hall, kind of blissing out in front of Ramana. They wanted an active front man for that organization. Mm. Although he did a bunch of sitting when he was doing all that fasting and all. He could yes, you know, I mean, I, whether, it's, whether it was a joke or not, I don't know. But Bhagavan just laughed and said, they're afraid you'll give up politics if he comes here. That's interesting. <laughs> We're jumping around a bit, but um, uh, Kamakshi from Minnesota asked, did Maurice learn any Tamil or other South Indian languages? Uh, not that I know of. If, if you manage a factory in Bangalore nowadays, then you have to know Tamil because Tamil is a very significant proportion of the population there. I'm not quite sure how it worked in his day, but I, I would guess he knew enough to do basic interchanges with, mm. with his workers. Uh, there's a lot of myth-making gone on about Morris, and what, one of the things I've been doing is trying to find facts rather than myths. So there, there was the story that he was a brilliant scholar, learned lots of languages, got A grades on all his courses. And I actually sent someone down into the basement of Warsaw University to ch check his transcripts. <laughs> and he wasn't a very good student at all. And he got really bad, bad grades in his foreign languages, English and French. Mm. So, so I'm, I'm not quite sure how stories like this came up. I, th I think he got to where he did by dogged perseverance rather than any individual talent or brilliance. He just worked very hard at mastering the things he had to master. Hmm. Here was a little story about Maurice. Uh, apparently when he was on his deathbed, he was sick, uh, some nurse showed up and uh, the nurse was told that there had been some mistake and she was about to leave when she spotted a photo on the wall and said, he, Ramana, exactly. is the man who told me to come here. And that's so interesting. There, we talked about this in the last interview, but there are so many stories where Ramana shows up for somebody while mm. they're in their bedroom or while they're walking right. down the street mm -hmm. or something. And uh, we kind of played with the notion that some actual entity representing Ramana is still hanging around doing things or whether it's just the divine that somehow knows to manifest using Ramana's appearance in order mm -hmm. to direct people to do this and that. It's... Again, I, I, I remember that last interview. I came down on the side that there wasn't somebody up there supervising all the devotees' activities and in, intervening as and when needed. I, I think when, when a need is there, then somehow the self produces a form that looks like Ramana. And uh, in, in this particular case, it told a nurse to go and knock on that door because there was an old devotee his, of his who needed palliative care for a few days. Nisagadatu was there when he passed away. He was I mean, there he, when Maurice passed away. He, he was actually there on his final day. Oh. And somebody, somebody said, Maharaj, what's happening? What's happening? And Maharaj said, Noth nothing is happening. Nobody is, nobody is dying. That was his, the implication of that was he'd long since dead. A, a body was about to disintegrate, but nothing was happening to Maurice because Maurice was already home. Mm. 
I find it so interesting that the the self, you know, we we anthropomorphize it, sort of saying the mm -hmm. se the self decides to do this or the self, you know, manifests that, and so uh. on. Whereas usually we think of the self as this sort of, you know, flat oceanic pure consciousness. But you know, we, when we say things like that, we attribute very almost individual intentions, as it were, to that oceanic intelligence or oceanic consciousness. So uh, maybe either you or, or maybe um, people you can quote, such as Ramana or Papaji, could, could comment on that idea. Bhagavan was very insistent that they're, they're called Sankalpas in India, intentions. The, inten the intentions to accomplish something. Mm -hmm. He said God, the self, is absolutely without Sankalpa whatsoever. He said in the, in the presence of the sun, one flower might bloom and another might not. It's not because the sun's chosen one and not the other, it's about the state of readiness. He, he said the self is present, it's permeating, it's shining on all, and those who need a particular manifestation, it will happen at the right moment, but not through any desire or intention on behalf of the sun. And he said the self is like that. Hmm. And yet it seems that the self is actually orchestrating things in a very intelligent way, like showing a picture of Ramana to that nurse, or, you know, right. and, yeah. and having telling the nurse to come, or showing up in Pamela Wilson's bedroom and, and right. when she asked for help, and mm -hmm. many, many, many stories like that. So it's kind of more than just a sort of completely passive, inactive, flat thing. It seems to be more of an in, engaged in our world right. in, in certain ways. A, a point may be reached in your life when the one thing you need is the presence of someone like Ramana or a point in the right direction, he might come. And uh, I think the self picks a form that you will later recognize to be him because it knows that's where your destiny is. If you're destined to, I don't know, be a Christian monk, it might, the Pope might come. I mean, who knows? Yeah, it's kind Jesus of, it's, or something. It's something, yeah, some, something relevant will come. Yeah. So there, is, there isn't a pre-existing form that slots in and out of these stories. There's the potential to manifest in any, any form according to your maturity and what your path, your destiny is. Yeah, sort of like the self is some kind of divine clay that can mold itself right, into exactly. different, different yeah. forms as needed. But mm -hmm. there again we say, quoting your words, the self picks a form because it knows. And that, that sounds like uh, we, such yeah. a godlike role that the self is playing, where it's, it's intervening mm -hmm. in human affairs and showing, you know, manifesting just the right form to have just the right effect right. here and there. So it just kind of contradicts the notion that the self yeah. is... Can, is I can I retract my grammar then? <laughs> okay. sure. I, I, there's no intention, there's no picking and choosing. A particular person will have a predilection, a passion, a level of maturity, and that itself will condense as the form that it needs in that moment. Mm. There isn't somebody up there saying, time to go and see Rick, time to go and see David. Well, there's a quote from the Gita, you know, Krishna says, as men, as men approach me, so do I favor them. So it almost, maybe it's, yeah. it's as you approach, mm -hmm. that, then the divine sort of, you yeah. elicit a response from, mm -hmm. from that field of all possibilities that's appropriate exactly. to your situation. Exactly. So, can I digress even more? Sure, no problem. <laughs> so, we're, we're actually I, I, on precisely the right trajectory here okay, with all our it's, digressions. It's a, it's a relevant story. So I lived in a house in India about uh, 12 years ago and I ended up buying a piece of land where I live now and the person who owned it 
had been having visions of Bhagavan in the late 1990s. He was at that time a, an economic student at Harvard University, a very straight-laced kind of place to be, not the sort of place you want to admit to having visions. So he thought, I'm keeping quiet about this, I don't want a trip to the mental hospital. So he, he, he was smart enough to find out from his visions who the person was, but didn't really pursue it one way or the other. He just knew it was Ramana. And he was good enough to win a prize for the best thesis of his year. Part of the prize consisted a cash award to his course supervisor, who of course had done nothing. My friend had written his thesis and the professor had just signed off. So the professor was very happy and said, great, come out to dinner, let's celebrate. So he went out to the professor's house. It was outside Cambridge. Couldn't work out which was the back and front of the house and knocked on the back door, kitchen door by mistake. And no answer, so he went in. And on the fridge in front of him was a picture of me and my ex-wife on a magnet on the fridge. And at that point, his professor came in and my friend said, what's David Goldman's picture doing on your fridge? And he said, well, he's married to my daughter. They live in Tiruvannathalai. <laughs> <laughs> so, so that's how that connection made. So dad was an atheist Marxist. So this is a bit of a shock to him that his star student who just won an award for the best thesis of the year had been having, he, David told him I've been having visions of this man in India. And so Steve put him in touch with me and David came over, fell in love with Tiruvannamalai. I eventually bought him a big piece of land and now we share this property in India. And it's all because Bhagavan appeared to him in visions when he was doing his undergraduate work and he kept quiet about it till he saw my picture on the fridge of his professor in his professor's kitchen. <laughs> Amazing. Such things are not random coincidences. No, so somehow he was destined or we were destined to meet, he was destined to come to buy this land. And at some point, the easiest way of doing it was for Ramana to pop into his dreams, his visions, for him to win the prize, to go and see his professor, to see the picture. And that's why we're now neighbors. Interesting. Let's switch on to Muruganar, if, Muruganar. I, if I'm pronouncing okay. that correctly. Mm -hmm. You want me to read a little bit of what you wrote about him here as an introduction? Any, anything you like. Okay, so Muruganar was a poet saint who was a key figure in the last tw 27 years of Ramana Maharshi's life. He assembled the most reliable record of his guru's spoken teachings, Guru Vachaka, pronounce it please? Vachika Kovai. Vachika Kovai. He persuaded him to write down his teachings in Uladu Naran. Uladu Nalpadu. I should just let you say this. <laughs> <laughs> Why don't you go ahead and talk more about him rather than me reading uh, this? Okay, so what, what, any aspects of that you want elaborating on or shall I, well, shall I start at the beginning? Start at the beginning and tell us why you think that, you know, Muruganar was so significant that he's one of the three people you really wanted to talk about today. Okay. So Muragana was an outstanding Tamil scholar. This is before he met Bhagavan. Mm -hmm. He was in fact on the committee that was compiling the definitive Tamil dictionary. He was a very erudite sought after Tamil scholar. But he was also looking for a guru and his template for the guru-disciple model was the one that had occurred between an old Tamil saint called Manikavachika and Shiva a thousand years before. So Manikavachika was the prime minister of an old Indian kingdom and he was desperate for a guru and he, 
his desperation, this is back to what we were talking about before, caused Shiva to appear before him and become his guru. And he got the enlightenment experience with Shiva. And as a result of that, and in gratitude for what Shiva had done for him, he toured all over Tamil Nadu, singing songs in praise of Shiva. And those songs were collected and compiled in a work called Tiruvachikum, which is one of the all-time classic texts of Tamil devotional literature. So Muragana saw that as his model. He had a father-in-law who was a prominent devotee at Ramanashram. The father-in-law came, showed him one of Ramana's poems. Uh, Muragana thought this might be the man for me. So he came, uh, composed some verses on the way, went to see Bhagavan. And to cut a long story short, Bhagavan completely captured his heart. And in a very, very short period of time, he got the liberation he'd been seeking. But Bhagavan could see that his secret desire wasn't just for a guru. He wanted to serve that guru or manifest his gratitude towards that guru by composing Tamil poetry. So Bhagavan said, can you write like Manikavachika? This is on their second meeting. And Muragana, of course, thought that's tall order. Tall, tall order. This is one of the all-time great saint poets of Tamil history. But he took that as at least a sign that he should proceed. So over the next few, next few years, he actually composed a work praising Bhagavan that paralleled the Tiruvachikam. And Bhagavan loved it. He encouraged it. He read out all the poems when they were published. So he got that relationship that he was longing for. He got the, the contact, he got the experience, and he got the, the muse, if you like, the poetic, poetic muse was Bhagavan inspiring him to compose and write this poetry so that his, his desires to have that kind of relationship could be fulfilled. Bhagavan had a, an interesting ability with certain close advanced people that if you composed poetry in his presence, if you like, somehow it came very easy, very spontaneous, and they actually felt that what came out of your pen was him writing. Uh, Ganapati Muni had this experience, Muragana had this experience, so they both felt that somehow his Shakti, his presence, got into them, and without any effort on their behalf, poetry would spontaneously come out of their fingertips. So in, in this was something that was switched on in Muragana's brain. And for all of his life, he had an ability, that's not even an ability, poems spontaneously appeared inside him, almost ready-made. And he would speak them out or he would write them down. He was a bit scatterbrained, he wasn't a good organiser, so, so other people would collect them, write them down. If he dictated, he'd write them. And in later years, he had a slate handy. He was very old school, uh, chalk and slate and he would write them down, and if the next one came before anyone had visited to copy it, he'd just wipe it out and that won't be lost, lost forever. He probably wrote about 25,000 verses in his lifetime, or rather, they came out of him spontaneously, unasked, in, inspired by the same experience that he'd got with Bhagavan, that same power, created this poetry inside him and made it flow. So I, I've translated some of these poems with Pandit translator friends are absolutely gorgeous. They are praising Bhagavan. They're talking about his own experience of the self, which Bhagavan absolutely endorsed, by the way. Although he never gave a public certificate to Muragana, there was absolutely no doubt that Bhagavan approved 
of the poetry that said, thank you for giving me the grace to realize the self. I mean, I'll just give you one example of how definite this was. Muraganu was sitting in Bhagavan's presence, thinking about what to write next. He'd, st he'd started a long poem, he'd written, it was a single verse format, he'd written 200 lines and uh, thought he'd go for, a work, go for a walk and think about it and come back. And when he got back, Bhagavan had picked up his manuscript and written 300 more lines. He must have gone for a very long walk. And the first verse that Bhagavan wrote was as if he was Muragana, praising Bhagavan, saying, thank you for giving me the grace to realize the self. So, so Bhagavan himself was imitating Muragana's style. And the first verse he wrote down was, thank you, thank you, Guru, you've done this for me. So that, that's about as strong an endorsement you can get without handing out a certificate. So, that, so there was no doubt in Bhagavan's mind that this, this was a liberated soul sitting in front of him. So that's, that was his devotional side. But parallel to this, he was writing down Bhagavan's teachings. And it may sound very odd. To, to me, it still sounds odd. But in those days, people didn't write down what Bhagavan said in Tamil, which was the language he spoke. They would tend to write down in English or occasionally Telugu. So there are very few records of what he said in his own language. As so he they said would kind that. of translate on the fly. Yeah. So, the, for example, the man who compiled talks, he was the interpreter and the transcriber. So he just tended to translate, write down what the translation he was giving out to the visitors was, rather than what Bhagavan said in Tamil. Muragana mm. was different. Muragana wrote down what Bhagavan said, and the same day he would show it to Bhagavan, and Bhagavan would say, yes, very good, or he might say, change this, add this, not quite right. And by 1939, um, about 800 of these statements had been compiled. Uh, Bhagavan knew that Muragana didn't have the inclination to organize thematically, so he gave these 800 verses to someone else and said, sort them out by topics, let's have a book. And that man wrote an introduction, we'll come to that in a minute. And then back the, it was sent off to the press and a proof copy came back from the press. And Bhagavan went through it, this proof copy still exists. And every single verse was checked by Bhagavan. You can see his handwriting in the margin. You can see all the stuff he changed. He changed the order of the verses. He changed what was in the verses. He added new verses of his own. So this is the most thorough copy editing you can imagine. And then he went back to the introduction, which the editor had written himself. And there was a line in that introduction that said, this book contains the teachings of Ramana Maharshi in a pristine form. And Bhagavan took out his pen and put a little carrot on the end of one word and added one syllable. And that one syllable can mean this book alone contains the teachings of Ramana Maharshi in a pristine form. Meaning I, I give my imprimatur on this in a way that I've not given my imprimatur on any other collection of teachings, any other book. This, this is the one that accurately reflects my teachings. I think we owe an extraordinary debt to Muragana, not because of his vast devotional poetic output, but because he took the trouble to write down what his guru was saying, got it checked on the same day, and got Bhagavan through, I think, the power of his surrender. Please look at my work, please change it, I accept all your changes. So what, what came out is, in my opinion, the most 
authoritative collection of Bhagavan's spoken, spoken teachings in existence, simply because Muragana did it in Tamil and took the trouble to have everything checked and edited. It's really significant, actually. I mean, you know, think how different things would be if someone had done that around Christ or around Buddha and so on. Mm -hmm. I mean, usually it's a couple hundred years later and somebody starts, yeah. starts writing things down, mm -hmm. you know. Right. So it's important. Mm -hmm. yeah. There was something about Muragana, I think I've talked to teachers about this. If you have a strong devotion and a desire for your guru to do something, the guru tunes into your devotion and has to do what you want. So the, 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 the level or intensity of your de devotion compels the guru to act in the way that you desire. Yeah, I was, looking, I was listening to a couple of your recordings in which you mentioned two devotees whom you said, whom Ramana said he was afraid of. Exactly, yes. Yeah, meaning they were so <laughs> devoted to him that whatever yeah. they wanted, he had to do. Right, exactly. So, so Muragana had this level of devotion, on top of which, like the icing on the cake, was this strong desire to have Ramana record his teachings properly. So these 40 verses, Aladu Napadu, he persuaded Bhagavan to compose them. He wrote another poem towards the end of which he wanted Shiva to give a speech giving out his basic lessons and thought Shiva sitting in front of me will get, will get Ramana Shiva to do this. So simply because he had the intensity of devotion, if he put in a request like this, whatever Bhagavan might have been feeling, he had no capacity to say no. So through the strength of that devotion, Bhagavan responded by giving out written teachings which are still today the core most authoritative written statements he ever most authoritative statements he ever made mm. i just want to interject a point here you know you mentioned earlier that maurice for instance um he didn't so much like the scene around the ashram when he first showed up and he had objections to this and objections to that but sitting in ramana's presence his mind stopped right and uh and you know there are so many stories like that around Ramana and around some other saints. And I just want to make the point to listeners that if you've ever had the experience of, or never had either, the experience of being in the presence of a great enlightened being like that, it's, it's definitely worth seeking out if you can find such a person. Because all the, wor all the words in the world don't really do justice to the experience you have when you're in the immediate vicinity of someone of that magnitude. It, it has a, a, a profound and deeply moving effect on your, your consciousness. It just shifts sometimes very radically, mm -hmm. just being in the, in the mere proximity of such a person. I agree entirely. My first proper experience of this was with Lakshmana Swami, mm -hmm. in probably 1978. In the previous two years, I'd been meditating all day. I was in my sadhu mode and sitting cross-legged, my dhoti in my beard, and thought, this is it, I'm the great sadhu, I'm almost enlightened. <laughs> <laughs> like you do when you start. Yeah. And uh, somebody said, go, go and see this man. He, he, he got liberation with Bhagavan in the 1940s. He's got a great presence. So I thought, why not? You know, no harm in it, five-minute walk. So I went and sat there, and he just turned his head like slowly and looked at me and in three or four seconds I got more peaceful, more quiet, more everything you can think of than I had from sitting all day every day for two years. He just looked at me once and I, I realized that I thought, you know, I, 
made this much progress and there was this far to go. <laughs> and then the, when he looked at me, I realized that was how far, that's what I'd done and that was how far there was to go. Yeah. And the, the, the free lunch, if you like, the best way to get those extra big distances was to hang out with these people and spend as much time with them as possible. So that was a, a big change in my life. I thought this is, this is the way to go, seek out these people get their blessings, sit with them, and then you've got the wind behind you. <laughs> Interesting, which, which you went ahead and did then for mm -hmm. yeah. many, many, many years. Kind of an interesting uh, lesson to be packed into three to five seconds of, of attention from someone. Well, um, there's a certain, somebody can tell you something, you might agree or you might disagree. Mm -hmm. Somebody can actually show you in one look, and that's incontrovertible. You can't argue with it. Yeah. There were some tidbits of notes I took down when I was reading. Some of it's from uh, Muraganar, but um, I just want to cover these little tidbits because they caught my attention. I thought I would discuss these with David. One is um, you said somewhere in something I was reading that a self-realized person has no motivation or ambition. And, and I heard that and I thought, well, what about Maurice? I mean, he's self-realized and he seemed to have he's full of motivations and ambitions. I think Morris got it quite late on in life with Nisargadatta. You know the story of Vivekananda and um, Ramakrishna? That he, he, he got the experience, he went into Samadhi and then Ramakrishna took him out and then Vivekananda went all around the world, did his teaching, his preaching, wrote all his books, came back to India and then he got the, the final experience from Ramakrishna again and that's the chronology that seems to be accepted. And somebody talked to Bhagavan about this and said, well, if he got it immediately, if Ramakrishna had made him stay in that state, or maybe he wasn't ready, but if he had stayed in that state, he wouldn't have had that, um, that residual, I must go around the world and spread, spread the teachings. I, th I think his guru wanted him to do that, but he couldn't do that from the state of no desire, no ambition. So I, I think he gave him the power, gave him the initiation to go around the world. And when he came back, job done, his guru put him in that final state and his, his missionary zeal was over. So Bhagavan himself said that had he, had he had the experience first time round, he wouldn't have run around the world doing all these things. So I think with Morris, possibly Gandhi for all I know, um, Lakshmanaswamy told me and Papaji also that Gandhi got it. He got the final experience late in life, but there was all this intense energy, this desire to change things, improve things, make things better, which animated them for several decades. And then finally through that and through the parallel track of a hunger for transcendence, they got the final state soon before they ended their life. This is what people are telling me. Yeah, let's play with this a bit more. I mean, one way of reading this verse is, you know, a self-realized person has no personal motivation or ambition, but they may be a, a representative of divine motivation or ambition. And, you know, there are some great sages, such as Amrita Nandamai, uh, who mm -hmm. I saw last weekend, you almost came down to see, who is involved in all sorts of projects and, you know, things to help right. people, who, you know, seems to be full of motivation and ambition, but it really doesn't seem to be personal, like, I got right. I got to do this. It's more like mm -hmm. she's just serving as a conduit or as a mm -hmm. representative of, you know, divine will. I can't comment on her. All I know is what Ramana said about Vivekananda, that in his case, 
if he'd had the final experience, he wouldn't have been motivated to go off. Mm. And so his guru knew that this was his destiny or knew it was something he wanted to do. So he somehow withheld the final experience till he got back. Mm. Uh, well, other, other, other people, like the one thing you can't do is say everybody should be like this. Right. All teachers have to exhibit this trait. And if they exhibit this other trait, then they can't be enlightened. I'm not going that route because I, I've learned they come in every conceivable shape and size. <laughs> and the most odd, bizarre characters seem to have it. And the ones who look pure and holy quite often don't. There's no one size fits all. Every, right. everyone, everyone has a destiny, physical destiny to fulfill in this life. And some of them do it from the enlightened perspective and most don't. For, for example, Bhagavan would quote, he would list famous jnanis in history and he'd always add King Janaka. I was just going to mention King he Janaka, said King, right. King, ja king Janaka was a busy man. He was an exemplary king. He ran his kingdom, but he did it all from the state of jnana. He said some people go mad, some people keep quiet, some people go out and teach, and some people run kingdoms. You can't predict what's going to happen when this experience comes to you. Yeah. You can't judge a book by its cover necessarily, right. and, and people have an individual destiny, or, or well, not an individual, but they, the, each form, each human expression mm -hmm. has its destiny or its dharma right. or its karma mm -hmm. or whatever, which is somewhat irrespective of the inner condition. Enlightened people don't necessarily all become recluses. I mean, even Ramana in his own way had, you know, certain idiosyncrasies and motivations and, you know, peculiarities. Like you, you mentioned, he was really frugal and he would crawl around the kitchen mm -hmm. kitchen floor picking up stray mustard seeds and right. put, putting them back um, in the jar and things like that. So there's, he, there's, um, there's two Sanskrit words. Kartrutva and Kartavya, which I like. Kartrutva is the idea that you are doing, you are the one doing something, I am the doer, I must accomplish this. But there's a more abstract passive one, that's the Kartavya. It's the feeling that something must be done. So it's not I have to do it, but it's this general feeling that there is something that needs to change, something that needs to improve. And Bhagavan said even Kartavya has to go. If you're a true jnani, you know that everything is perfect, everything is the way it ought to be, and that neither you nor anybody else has to intervene to change the unfolding of the divine plan. And Robert Adams, I think there was a question about Robert Adams coming up. So his little maxim proverb was, all is well. So whenever he was asked about anything in the world, he said, all is well. Everything is, is exactly the way it needs to be. If you're the jnani, you don't think anything needs to be changed. He said, your presence itself might be the catalyst for change. You yourself don't change, but through your presence, things might change. But at no point is there any feeling in you that things should change. And yet you don't become a pushover. You don't necessarily become right. passive. Like, yeah. you know, someone would try to get Ramana to do something and he would say, no, I'm not going to do that, you know, or exactly. I'm, I'm not yeah. going to do that until such and such happens. Right. Or, you know, those you, kind you, of things. You, you could catch him through your devotion. Yeah. Uh, remember, I, I, we talked about this. If you've got so much devotion, the guru has to do whatever you asked. I talked to Sarudama, Sarudama Lakshmanaswamy's disciple about this. And she said, you know, Swami, he absolutely loathes meat. He'd get sick, at, sick, at, sick if he even smelt meat being cooked. Mm -hmm. But if you had the right level of devotion, you came, with a, came in with a Big Mac, he'd be compelled to eat it. <laughs> it's like the, the, you, you can actually compel people to go against their violent dislikes, their violent distastes by having enough devotion on your side that they're compelled to do it. 
But if you just barge in and say, you must do this, you must do that, out of your personal interest or personal desire with no devotion, then they're not going to play ball with you. Okay. Here's something kind of philosophical that I picked out from reading Muraganar's text, and I guess there was some commentary inter intermixed with that. It's a couple little bits here. God, the world, and, G and the jivas, individual souls, arise and subsist together, but they are not, according to Bhagavan, fundamentally real entities since they are not permanent. So he was saying that even God is not a, a fundamentally real entity or an eternal entity since God himself or itself or whatever emerges and is absorbed back. Correct. So when we talk about God here, we're talking what the Indians called Ishwara, the, pers God. The, the, the personal God, personal God. Okay. who might take a form for you as right. Ramakrishna Krishna or anybody else. So he's saying within the self that arises an I who projects a world it sees in front of it, along with it, a God who makes the rules for that particular world and organizes the consequences for actions. So it's a projected world from the formless self that contains you, an apparently external visible world, and Ishwara, who's up there deciding what the consequences are going to be for all the things you do. But he, he said that's not real because his definition of reality is something has to be there all the time. Anything that appears and disappears is not the truth, it's just an appearance. The classic Advaita Vedanta definition of reality is it must be there all the time, it can never be absent at any point, it cannot be mediated through anything, so anything that needs a person to see it, you can't say a tree is real because you see it, because there's a mediating agent, and that mediating agent is not permanent, and it must shine by its own light. It cannot exist through reflected light. So these are the three definitions you have to conform to, to be accepted as real in Indian philosophy. And according to Bhagavan and all the other Advaita sages, only the formless self meets this definition. So out, out of this formless self, individuality arises. It creates a world in front of itself. It creates Ishwara, the personal God, who runs the show, makes the rules, hands out rewards and punishments. But when the eye that projects the world is finally extinguished in the self, then you, the world, and Ishwara go. And he said once to Paul Brunton, he said, Ishwara is the last of the unreal forms to go. And if, as everything kind of goes down the toilet, you, the world, Ishwara is the last one to go around the bend. And then you're, then you're left as formless self. So you can see that as a distinction between God and the Godhead in Western terminology. The Godhead would be the self, out of which the God who runs the world, the God who organizes, appears, but he's not a permanent entity. He comes and goes with you and with the world you create. Yeah, one thing that I always puzzle about with that kind of point is that th there seems to be a sort of an intersubjectivity or something where the world may disappear for you, but it doesn't disappear for the others. Who still? Who st we talked about this in the previous interview. You know, you get enlightened, or you die, for that matter, and you know, others still see the same moon up there, uh, and we all agree upon. Okay, the moon is there, and the sun is there, and there's there's sort of an inner subjective agreement that, you know, doesn't uh, dissolve as mm. individual jivas dissolve in and out of existence. So it would seem that there are gods or entities or 
you know, intelligent expressions of intelligence governing the whole show, whose existence doesn't hinge upon our particular enlightenment or ignorance. You know what I mean? I know exactly what you mean. Um, <laughs> people used to pester Bhagavan about this endlessly, and he would never back down. So uh, this this is the common sense point of view. Mm -hmm. But he didn't do common sense on this topic. He 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 was way off in left field. Mm -hmm. He said all the people that you see in your world, you, you think that they're like you. You think they're people inside a body, but they're not. They're all your projections. And when you get liberated, all your projections go with it. So th there's a, a lovely story I read, um, you know, about the Bodhisattva vow. Yeah, sure. You come for the sake of the... Well, no, the, the, the idea that you're not going to get liberation until everybody else has right. attained liberation first. Right. So somebody mentioned this to Bhagavan, and he actually roared with laughter. He thought it was one of the funniest things he'd ever heard. <laughs> and he said, that's like saying, I'm not going to wake up in the morning till everybody else in my dream has woken up first. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good example. Uh -huh. uh, here's a related point that I picked uh -huh. up from your notes. If you see the world, the self will not be visible. If you see the self, the world will not be visible. This is another one which doesn't sort of make sense, because, uh, at least from a ordinary perspective, because the self was obviously visible to Ramana, uh, not as an object, but you know, he was self-realized, and yet you know, he interacted with apparent people. Now we could argue, of course, that he didn't see them as real or, or as having any ultimate existence. They were just sort of part of some sort of dream, but, but he, you know, he was able to walk through doorways and swim and pick up mustard seeds and, and do all sorts of things that, uh, that acknowledge the, at least the sort of conditional acceptance of mm -hmm. diversity. So, again, this, this is, we were back in 1935, and there you are, there are so many conversations that start with your premise, and he would dig his heels in, and it, the, the conversation could go in any one of several directions. He would say, he might take the solipsistic point of view and said, all of these things take place in your world, they don't play, take place in mine, don't project onto me your projection and assume that I'm in your projection, I'm not. But then he, he would say that in the state of the self, all the world is Brahman, meaning the world doesn't wink out in this state, you know it, see it as an indivisible appearance within your own self. So you no longer look at a tree and see a tree as something outside of yourself. There's a knowledge of being the self and within that knowledge, creation appears and disappears in an uncaused way. So he said, you can say that there is no world, which is, all, which is true, but you can also say the world is the self, but not as an aggregation of discrete names and forms. It's there, present, as your own self, but you no longer see it. What disappears is the superimposed notion of a seer and a scene. He said that's what disappears in the moment of liberation. The idea that I occupy a body, this is my body, this is my character in the drama, everything else is apart from me, separate from me. So he said, once you cease to identify with a particular form, and know that you're not that body, then you know that you're equally the substratum of all the forms that appear, and that's how you live in the world. 
So it sort of harkens back to Shankar's three-part thing. You know, the world is an illusion, Brahman alone is real, the, exactly. wor the world is Brahman. So yeah. it's, it's like you're still seeing the world, so to speak. No, 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 no. you don't see it. He but it's Brahman. I mean, you, you know. You you don't, so we, we are conditioned to register the world through senses as other. Mm -hmm. So what Bhagavan says disappears is this idea of, of otherness that's seen as separate. Right. He, he said, you actually know yourself to be the tree in front of you. You don't see it in front of you. Mm. So we, it's very hard to get the grammar right on this. Yeah. But I, for example, I think when you're in that state, for example, people would try and give him extra food. And Bhagavan would say, I'm eating through every mouth in this dining room. Mm. I'm not this form you see in front of me. Every time someone swallows a mouthful of rice over there, that's me eating. It's all the same. Stop force feeding me. And there's a level of, once you get out of this identification with specific forms, then you start to experience input that all the other things are registering. So he would get upset if people were beating a tree outside with a stick to get the leaves or the mangoes off. He'd actually feel the pain on his body. Sure. So he was the tree. He wasn't seeing the tree. He'd somehow become the substratum of that tree. And when people in his neighborhood were bashing it, he'd kind of go, ouch, he'd actually feel, feel the pain. Mm. So it's a very different way of registering what he would call the world. It wasn't something he saw, interacted with, as anything separate. He was the substratum in which all those things came and left, but without ever losing the notion that they were coming and going in him, they weren't separate. Good, nicely put. Let's talk about Mastan for a bit. Ah, he's a good one. <laughs> so, here's a little blurb here. Mastan was a Muslim weaver who heard about Ramana Maharshi through a devotee who lived in his village. He came to see Ramana in the first decade of the last century during the Virupaksha cave period. And even before he had met Sri Ramana, he went into a paralyzing samadhi that lasted about eight hours. This is an amusing story. Sri Ramana is on record as saying that of all the people who came to him, Mastan was in the most advanced state on the day he first arrived. Yeah, so he just showed up, touched the gate at the cave, right, and then went into samadhi for about eight hours. Right. I, when I was researching Mastan, I went to Ganeshan, who was a repository of devotee stories. He, he made it his life's mission to go around and talk to all the old devotees and collect information. So he, he was one of my ports of call. Uh, at that point, I only had about half a page of information about Mastan, so I was scrambling around looking for people who might uh, know something about him. And he said, oh, didn't I tell you that story about what Bhagavan told me about Mastan? I said, no, you haven't published anything, you haven't told me. And he said that he talked to a man called Viswanatha Swami, who was one of, the son of his cousin, uh, but also a devotee at Ramaneshram, and he had said that when a, when a jnani manifests on earth, then all kinds of beings are attracted to his presence. He said the gods might come down from the heavens. This is very unlike Ramana to talk about things like this. He mm -hmm. said the gods might come down and have darshan. Brahma rishis, the great enlightened rishis, might come and have darshan. He said en enlightened siddhas might come, and they might take the form of animals. They might come into the jnani's presence to have darshan in animal form. And then he said, and advanced devotees from all over will just feel that call and come. Mm. 
Mm. And then, and then uh, having given that list of gods, rishis, siddhas, and advanced devotees as an addendum to the story, he said, of all the people who came to see me, the one who arrived in the most advanced state was Mastan. That's, that's, Ramana wasn't someone who complimented people a lot. That, that is a ringing endorsement of Mastan's state. And can, can I also, before we digress, uh, this, this whole business of Siddhas coming to see Bhagavan, this was also a bit odd. He, uh, with a totally straight face, he might just say, well, that sparrow who just flew in and perched on the beam, <laughs> that, was, that was a Siddha who took the form of a sparrow's body and came in to say hello. Mm -hmm. And he, he just seemed to think that there were these beings in and around Arunachala who had this ability to occupy an animal body and come and say hello to him and have darshan and go away again. I imagine some also came in their subtle body. They didn't have to take a physical yeah, flesh and blood exactly. body. Exactly. Uh, at one point, there was a woman, kind of devata, who apparently was, he thought she was a bit of a nuisance. She was following him around. Nobody could see him except Ramana. And somebody else spotted her one day and said, oh, I'm, I'm glad you can see her. No, no one else can see her. She follows me around all over the hill trying to serve me and give me food. Mm. And I keep telling her, I don't need your service. Go and serve somebody else. She was just there in her subtle body. She was just there in her subtle body trying to help out. Yeah. So, but that he, he made a point of going to the ashram gate on his birthday every year and personally supervising the feeding of all the sadhus who came. He this, said, this is Mastan we're talking about. No, this is oh, Ramana. Ramana, Ramana, okay. So Ram, Ramana said, great beings come. They want to pay their respects on my birthday. I'm not going to tell you who they are. They're coming incognito, mm -hmm. but out, out of respect, I'm going to make sure they get properly served. So he would stand and make sure everybody in the line got a proper respectful bowl full of food, but he never would say who they were, and then they went away for another year. Yeah. So all of, the, all of these extraordinary beings would be attracted to him. There is a Mastan connection. Um, in Skandashram, on a festival day, a golden mongoose showed up, and it came to Virupaksha cave. It wasn't the usual grey colour, it was a gold colour. And people assumed it was a pet because it was very friendly, it was quite inquisitive, it would run in and out of rooms, check, check out. Bhagavan's old attendant, Palaniswami, was still alive. So it went to see Palaniswami, then it came up the hill. And the only person that scanned Ashram was Mastan and Bhagavan. And uh, Bhagavan told Mastan, this, this is a sage of Arunachala. He's come, to, he's come to have darshan. He's come to see us in this form of the mongoose. So that was a, an, an interesting encounter between Mastan and Bhagavan. Uh, so it's hard to keep a straight face when you hear these stories, but Bhagavan didn't joke about these things. No. He actually saw all these great beings coming to see him, com coming to have his darshan in strange forms. Well, this kind of thing is rather routine in a lot of Indian scriptures, where right. you know some great beings such as Rama or somebody takes birth, and then hordes of other beings <laughs> say, "Okay, he's he's going to take birth. Let's let's go." You know, and exactly. They, they uh, all they all come around in various uh, forms. Can, can I can I digress a little bit about? Sure. A wonderful man that I know. His, his name is Sharad Tiwari, and he was a big engineer for the Madhya Pradesh government. And he was responsible for signing off all the plans for the Narmada River dams. This was a big, big uh, dam project in central India. Lots and lots of big dams were being built. He came to see Papaji very early in his life, got an experience that turned him into a kind of ecstatic back to if you like but with with the undercurrent of self-knowledge 
So when I saw him, he was utterly incapable of holding down any kind of job. I, I saw him in Papage's house and quite literally, you, you had to hold a bowl in front of him with a spoon like this and say, open your mouth, open your mouth, you had clothes, chew, swallow. <laughs> and at night time, you had to lie him down and put a sheet over him so he'd go to sleep. And I thought, this man is not the right person to be in charge of safety of big dams in India. <laughs> this man can't even put a spoonful of food into his mouth. So I, I said, how do you manage at work, Sharad? How do you, do you read technical books? Do you keep up on engineering? And I, the day after I met Papaji, I never read a technical book again. So I said, how do you do your job? How do you satisfy yourself that these dams aren't going to fall down? He said, oh, Papaji does all that for me. And I said, how? He said, I, I go to the office every morning and there's always some folder on the desk. And I sit down and I, I see my hand open it like this and my eyes look at the page. He said, I haven't a clue what's on there. He said, it's all technical mumbo jumbo. But then I see my hand reaching out to the pen and it picks it up and says, OK or not OK, please change. And he said, at the end of the day, I've cleared everything off my desk. I take nothing home in my head. I take home no papers. And whatever that pen has written has always turned out to be correct. Papaji guides my hand to write the right things on the right reports. And none of my dams have ever fallen down. And every few years I get a promotion. Wow. <laughs> so I thought this is a really good ad advertisement for enlightenment. Like you don't have to think, you don't have to have headaches over complicated jobs. Just surrender to God and God makes you write the right thing on your forms. So then I said to him, I said, um, Shirad, lots of people had this experience with Papaji and it lasted hours, days, weeks. You seem to have got it 30 years ago. How did you manage to keep it? And why do you think all these other people lost it? And he said, if you have the absolute conviction when you sit with him that you're sitting in the presence of God himself, then the experience will never lose. And I'd never heard Papaji say this. And I said, well, that's interesting. So what, how do you get that conviction? He said, I don't get it. I sit there in front of him and I see all the gods from the heavens come into his living room <laughs> and I'm seeing them dancing around his head. I, I, I see them prostrate to him in midair. And he said, I think, well, if all these gods from the heavens are prostrating to this man in front of me, that this must be the supreme God. So I've had that conviction all my life and the experience never left me. Interesting. Sorry, I mean, that, we can't all be like that. We, we don't have these visionary proclivities, but he just said, I, I know because I've seen them come in, I've seen them bow. Nothing has ever dented my conviction that this is the supreme being. And the fact that these gods come in and bow to him just endorses it. Yeah, well, some people have that kind of perception. Mm -hmm. That's reminiscent of a story I read that you wrote about Papaji himself, where he was walking in Rishikesh or with somebody and, and he suddenly turned in some direction and the guy said, well, where are you going? He said, I don't know. And he said, well, how, fa how far is it going to be? And he said, right. I, I don't know. He said, well, when are we going to get there? He said, I, I we'll know when we get there. And why are we going? He said, I really don't know. And so, and so they finally got there and they, went, they found to some remote place where there was some sadhu or something that was just ripe for Exactly. Self-realization yeah. and Papaji just blessed him and he had that experience and then went on his way. Papaji never, he said, I've lived in the silence all my life and I've learned to trust everything it makes me do. Mm. So this, this is an interesting, there's nobody in there thinking I must do this. 
I should do that. On that particular day, the person told me we were walking to town to have a cup of tea and read, read a free newspaper in a cafe. He was a bit of a, a miser. He wouldn't buy his newspaper. He wanted a free one every morning. So they'd walk down the river, have a cup of tea and read the paper. But halfway there, he just veered off. And this is, he said, I've lived in that silence. And if this silence suddenly makes, makes my body take a 90 degree turn, I don't think, what about my cup of tea? What about my newspaper? I accept that I'm being propelled somewhere and I just go to that somewhere. And he said, when I find out the reason for that diversion, something inside me recognizes that was the reason I didn't end up with my cup of tea in the newspaper. And I recognize that that business is finished. And then I can go back to the normal routine of going for my cup of tea. But he said, I don't, I don't wonder why I'm suddenly being shot off at 90 degrees. I don't think there must be somebody at the end who's waiting for me. The self just says, right turn, step, step, step. And then su suddenly I see someone and I think, oh, that's the reason. And we have the, the transaction, he has the experience, and then I go back to my normal life again. Interesting pa way to live. Papaji always wanted transactions. He didn't want relationships. So he said, you go to the guru, you tell him your story, you tell him what you want. And he said, ideally, your business is finished. It's a one-stop shop, the guru. <laughs> he said, don't sit there, don't decide you're going to be there and meditate all your life. That's postponement. Just go there, tell him your business. The guru, if he's competent, can show you who you are. And then you walk off and you never see each other again. Mm. Uh, in, in fact, the world was, I, I, when I started writing Papaji's biography, I got permission to take all the addresses from his address book. He used to write down people's addresses endlessly. Mm but he wouldn't give his own address. Most people didn't know his name. He would never give his name. He wouldn't say where he lived. Most people didn't even know he was from Lucknow. So he had hundreds and hundreds of, let of addresses. I sent a form letter saying, why is your address in Papaji's address book? What's your connection? What's your story? And lots and lots of people wrote back, said, oh, thank you for this. I met him 30 years ago. Uh, I didn't even know his name. He wouldn't tell me who he was. He wouldn't let me follow him. He wouldn't tell me where he lived. Please, please thank him for what he did for me because I've never seen him again. We met once 30 years ago. Mm. And the, the one, sorry, I, of all the replies I got, the one that impressed me the most was just a postcard I got from Venezuela. He was there in the 70s. And all it said is, um, dear Mr. Godman, please tell Mr. Punja he did not waste his time in Venezuela. The day I met him, I became happy and I've been happy every day since. Tell him thank you. Interesting. I just want to mention again that this series of videos that you've made, um, there's, well, you've, you've written a whole book about, three-volume book about Papaji, which is full of fascinating stuff. But even in these videos you made, there's some very interesting ones about Papaji with some interesting anecdotes that give you a flavor for the man, you know, how, how remarkable he was. He even goes into talking about his past lives and so on and, and various things he went through in this life. Is Like, for instance, when he was in the British military for a while, after having previously been a terrorist building bombs to sort of blow up trains, he was such a Krishna Bhakta that he used to dress up in a sari at night and put on makeup and dance around ecstatically to Krishna all night long before, mm. before changing back into his uniform and <laughs> getting out for the day's activity. So well, those are really off-the-wall <laughs> sorts of things. It's very Puranic. You, you, read, you read about these stories in the Ramayana, Mahabharata, and you think fertile imagination, or this happened 5,000 years ago. It, it's, 
it's quite extraordinary to bump into someone who does that in the 20th century. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and, there, and there are quite serious corroborative reports also. I know people who saw Krishna when he saw them and they went into, um, they had kind of fainting fits, the shock was too much for them, but you know, he wasn't, he wasn't making it up. The gods did come and dance for him. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right, I'm going to ask you a bunch of questions that people okay. sent in, okay? Here's someone named Gabe from San Francisco. He asks, well, what did you make of Ramesh Balthakar as a teacher, and in particular his teaching of having no free will? Why did you not study with him if you didn't, though you were with Papaji and the Sargadatta? I liked Ramesh Balthakar when he was with the Sargadatta because he was far and away the best translator there. And unfortunately, there was a seniority process and the devotees who had been there the longest got first go at translation and, and Bausikar came quite late. So people who wanted to have good conversations would often pass on the invitation to have questions and wait, wait for interpreters one, two, three and four to be absent so we could all go through Bausikar. He, he would listen to your question. A lot of people, it wasn't native English. It might be a rambling statement and he would listen, he'd pick it up and give a very, very precise summary of what you said, pass it on, bring it back. So he, he, he had a good capacity to understand the Western mind. He was an ex-chief executive of a bank. He was a very smart man. His English was excellent. And Maharaj himself said he had a really good understanding of the teaching, but he wasn't imposing anything. He, he had a capacity to extract the essence of what you were saying, pass it on and give a very reliable reply in return. So we all loved him as a translator. I never went to him as a teacher. I didn't really feel inclined at that point. I, I was with other teachers. Apropos the, the free will, did you read that? Yes, out? yeah. Someone uh, asked about that. Bausikar was at the extreme end of the no free will spectrum of Indian teachers and uh, basically saying there's absolutely nothing you can do, everything is predestined. Uh, Bhagavan would say that all your actions are part of a predestined script, but that you always have the freedom not to associate with the person who is performing the actions. He said that's your one true freedom in life, you can't choose what the body is going to do, but you can choose to do self-inquiry to find out who this I is, who you think is performing the actions, and then when that eye disappears, you will know who you really are. The body will continue with its predestined script, but it will be nothing to do with you because you don't identify with it anymore. And although this was the answer he generally gave to people, there's a, a very interesting reply he gave in a book called Upadesha Manjari, Spiritual Instruction. He said, destiny only affects the extroverted mind. The more you introvert your mind, the more you transcend your destiny. So there was, there was a cop-out clause with Ramana that on the, on the whole he would say actions are destined, but he did say that intense meditation, in, in, intense introversion gives you the capacity to change your destiny in some way. Yeah, and it would seem that if you're going to do intense meditation or intense introversion, that that might actually be a choice. <laughs> you know, that you might freely make. You might, you might hear that advice from him and say, see, well, I, I, all right, sounds like good advice. Yeah. I think I'll buckle down and do it. 
I, I've had this conversation with all kinds of people. Everybody wants to know about this because it's such an odd thing for anyone to say. And the one thing that Bhagavan never clarified directly is, are your thoughts predestined as well as your body's actions? Indirectly, I would say his attitude will be no, because if you have the choice to say who just picked up that cup, and you have the choice either to go into that or not go into it, then your thoughts are not predestined. But there's no actual record of him saying explicitly one way or the other whether thoughts are predestined or not. <clears throat> yeah, I, would, I don't know who am I to say, but it, it seems to me that if you... You know, there's that whole verse in the Gita about not taking on the Dharma of another, the Dharma of right. another brings danger. Mm -hmm. And it would seem to me that if you perceive yourself as having free will, then exercise it wisely, you know, uh, and don't don't sort of use as a cop-out, well, there's no free will and I'm just going to sort of do, exactly. do this, whatever. This was Bhagavan's advice. He said, make good choices, live, live well, don't assume that you're in the transcendent state when you're not. Very good. Think, I, I can do whatever I like. He said the notions of free will and predetermination only exist along with body identification. The notions themselves are entirely absent in the self. But so long as you have a body, you have to know that the things that the body are going to do are scripted. But he also said make good choices. It may all sound paradoxical and contradictory, but he, he never excused bad behavior from people saying, oh, I was destined to kick that dog. Yeah. You know, he, he would expect people to behave properly, to interact responsibly, to live civil, polite lives with each other and to help, help those around them who needed help. Yeah. I think one way of resolving the paradox is to say that knowledge is different in different states of consciousness. Mm -hmm, right. And uh, you know, if you're in Ramana's states of con state of consciousness, it's one thing. But if you're not, then different laws apply to you. Um, right. You know, and, and mm -hmm. so you can't take Ramana's state and try to apply it to your state and live by that. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. Um, here's another question from the same fellow, Gabe. Um, can you discuss more about Robert Adams? Since your video regarding Adams was released, there seems to be some increasing interest in Adams' work. Shall, shall we assume people know who he is, or shall we start from scratch? Why don't you introduce him briefly? <laughs> Robert Adams was definitely at the mature end of the spectrum of spiritual seekers. He was a boy in America in the 1940s who had an extraordinary talent that whatever he thought about would manifest in front of him. So he, he could be outside the candy store and he said, I had to say three, it was like the Candyman movie. You say candy, 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 and the candy would appear in his hand. Instead of a monster coming through the mirror, he'd get the candy in his hand. It would just manifest? Or? It would just manifest, yeah, yeah. I mean, he, he said it was the perfect city for a kid to have. Yeah, wow. And uh, sometimes he said he would say, God, 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 he came from a Christian background, so he thought he had to make some kind of uh, divine appeal to get things, but he said it worked just as well if he just said, you know, ice cream, ice cream, as, as God, God, God. So he went through life. Oh, and he, he said, when I was a child, this strange man in a, a, in a diaper used to sit on my bed at night and, talk, and, and, talk, and talk nonsense. So <laughs> here we are, back to the, back to the Ramana appearing. Mm -hmm. So he never, he never elaborated on whether the nonsense was because it was in Tamil or because it was ab abstract philosophy or he just said he talked nonsense at the end of my bed and as I grew up he stopped coming but for a long time he'd come and sit on the end of my bed every night and talk nonsense. So in his early teens 
he had a test at school, a maths test, and uh, hadn't done his homework. He didn't need to with the city, so he just <laughs> he just said, "God, God, God," waiting for the, you know, answer to his quadratic equation or whatever. And he said, instead of getting the answer, I got the experience of God, mm. that somehow calling on God for help, God actually came as himself and gave me the experience. And he said, that was it. I was in that state and I remained in that state. So he wasn't anyone who did a long, complicated practice. And he went off, of course, and this is 1940s America, it's not a very congenial environment to get any kind of context to this. So he first went off to Joel Goldsmith, who was a Christian mystic, who interestingly enough had very similar ideas to Bhagavan on I and I am. He was telling his Christian flock in the 1940s to focus on I am, realize God through I am. Then he gravitated to Yogananda, who was in probably California at that time. And he wanted to adopt Yogananda as his guru. Yogananda said, no, no, your guru is Ramana Maharshi in India. Yogananda could see that. So at a very young age and by himself, 17 or 18, he got on an old prop plane, which must have taken you know half a week to get to India, uh, showed, showed up at Ramaneshram, stayed there for the last three years of Bhagavan's life. Uh, again, he's, he's one of the people who for decades went completely below the radar. He didn't really surface in anyone's consciousness until about 1990 when he appeared in LA giving satsangs to people there. And then slowly, slowly his backstory came out. But you don't find him mentioned in any ashram book. You don't find uh, any record of him at Raman Ashram. So when, when my interest in him was piqued, I started asking around. And the only person who could remember him was Arthur Osborne's daughter. And she remembered him because she was very annoyed that her dad gave Robert Adams the family car. He gave it away as a gift. I mean, can you imagine this? This cars are a rarity in the 40s, big status symbol. And Arthur Osborne was so impressed with this young teenager from America that uh, he just gave him the car and said, go off on your pilgrimage. And they never saw their car again. So she still remembered that. <laughs> But when I say Ramana was impressed, uh, he personally gave him a room at Raman Ashram. This is late 1940s when the crowds were uh, almost overwhelming and then brought food to his room and personally served him in his room. Wow. To, to me, that is some, somebody scored a big hit with Ramana. Yeah. They, they, they never really had any big dialogues, big conversations. He just sat there. He absorbed the presence. I think... If you want to run all the way around the world in search of a guru, something is still missing. You do need to have some authoritative confirmation of your state. He said, I got the state at 14, but he, he never quite says what Bhagavan did for him in his life. But I, I think he established him in that state, so he no longer needed to run around looking for gurus anymore. Mm. But he did in a casual, let's say touristy way. He spent the 1950s, 60s, uh, hopping around India, he saw all the big names, Ananda Maimar, Nisargadatta, Swami Ramdas. You don't get many stories, but he, he seemed to have been a, uh, a peripatetic Indian pilgrim for decades. Uh, got married, uh, he still has a, uh, a widow, still alive, a daughter somewhere. Uh, and then just lived a completely obscure life in America in around 1990s. 
Somebody put an advertisement in whatever the equivalent of Craigslist was in those days saying, uh, I'm a, I'm a Ramana devotee, I'm looking for devotees to have a Ramana satsang, anybody like to join me? And who should turn up but Robert? And this, this man realised within five minutes this wasn't a casual walk in off the street, this was somebody special. Mm. And he said, you just said, you're a Yani, aren't you? Wow. <laughs> and so, somehow Robert had that, um, that aura about him as somebody who knows. Um, Robert, uh, his, his early teachings were recorded in a manuscript that was entitled Silence of the Heart. And this manuscript came to Lucknow when I was there. And it was shown to Papaji. And Papaji said, I like this man's teachings. I'm going to read these out in satsang every day. This was the only living teacher I ever saw him praise, endorse, and take his teachings to satsang and read them out. He really, he really, really did like the teachings. That They were so purely Ramana. Remember I told you about Morris being able to summarize Ramana's teachings even better. Robert had an ability to explain exactly what Bhagavan was teaching without using any technical terms, any Sanskrit, any Tamil, any philosophy. I can go through the whole of this book and I can't find a single word or comma that Ramana wouldn't sign off on. And he does it ad lib without any, it's not book knowledge, it's all from experience. He's talking about inquiry, he's talking about the nature of the self, he's talking about the role of the guru. And you just read this and you think, this is a man who knows, this is a man teaching from experience. He doesn't need big words, he doesn't need to cite from books or give anyone else's opinion. He's just talking from the heart about the self, which he got confirmed in Bhagavan's presence in the 1940s. One interesting point that's implicit here and that has actually come up several times in our conversation is that there is such a thing as degrees of spiritual maturity that we come into this life with or that we advance in in this life. And, uh, you know, I know you don't want to talk about Neo-Advaita and neither do I, but, but you know, this, this whole notion that, you know, there are no levels, there are no degrees, you're all already enlightened, there's nothing you need to do and all that stuff doesn't really jibe with reality in my opinion. Okay, I agree. So the the traditional, although it's true on some level, but... yeah, the um, Vedanta or the Vedantic tradition that Bhagavan was associated with, he said some people get it by hearing the truth once from a guru. The guru might say you are Brahman, and you think yes, that's true. I'm Brahman, and you get it. There are people who have to do a little work, and there are people who have to slog away in the trenches for lifetimes to get it. And I think it's a mistake to think that you're anywhere near categories one and two. I think categories one and two are quite rare categories and that people think or delude themselves into believing they're almost enlightened that they just need to have one quick satsang or go and see this guru and they'll get it. Yeah, I was going to save this question until the end, but actually it's appropriate, uh, appropriate now, something um, related to this. Oh, I'm sorry, would you go sorry, ahead. Sorry, no, there's, um, there's a Saiva idea, which I really like. Saiva is the South Indian Siva tradition. Mm -hmm. And they have three categories. The most mature devotees can get liberation directly from the self. That would be somebody like Bhagavan. The next category, you can get it if God appears in front of you. God, God himself can come down and you can have a relationship with God. That would be like, remember I told you about Manikavachika, 
who wanted a guru, and Shiva appeared and fulfilled that role. So he was ready enough not to have the necessity of a human being, although Shiva did appear in human form. And then there's everybody else who were just so enmeshed in samsara that they actually need that physical guru to get them out. And that's the vast majority of people. Yeah. So these, these could parallel the three stages of hearing, the people who listen, do a bit of practice, and everybody else. Related to this, um, I was going to save this till the end, but Subaray from Kolkata, India asks, after so many years of dedicated seeking, how does David approach his own self-inquiry now? What did he discover about it, if anything? Has anything changed in his application and his feelings about it? Remember I told you in the beginning I was the gung-ho sadhu who thought, I can do this by myself, I can sit here, I can, like the Buddha, be a light unto yourself, do everything through your own effort, get your own results. I've, uh, how shall we say, I wouldn't say matured, developed. Now I know that my progress is contingent on the, the, the power that I know comes off my teachers. I feel more and more a feeling of love, veneration, respect, devotion to all these people. And days like this, I just love sitting down and talking about my teachers because if I sit here and tell weird stories, I just feel that inner glow inside me. I just feel it's a kind of rippling happiness that spreads out from inside just the thought of my teachers looking at their picture. That gives me the peace, the joy, the happiness. So I'm not thinking I must sit down, close my eyes, do inquiry. I can do this all by myself. I've begun, I've begun to feel the expansiveness of the joy I feel from the presence of my teachers. It's a bit like, well, sorry, I can't have direct experience of this, but the mother who looks at her baby and you, you just know there's that bond of love, your, your face lights up. I look at my guru's pictures, I read their words, I tell their stories, and inside me something lights up. And I know that by thinking of them, I get the grace, I get the power. And that, for me, is what moves the inquiry along. So it's no longer me in my solitary little trench, beating myself into submission. I know that I'm doing it. So, how shall we say? I, I know, it's very, I'd say arrogant, but I, I know somehow I've got, I've got the power of my teachers, my lineage. I know that God's on my side. That, or, or <laughs> it sounds very morally righteous and kind of right-wingy. No, I mean, that, that, you know what I mean? It's like I, I, no, I totally know. you're in your dharma. I mean, you're. I, I, I just I feel such love from my teachers to my teachers mm -hmm. that 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 greases and lubricates the wheels of my inquiry, my meditation. And it's so much easier now feeling the expansion of that, that joy inside me from the knowledge of just thinking about them, that it all goes very smoothly, very easily. I, I, there's a lovely, I don't know why this appeals to me, and Tamil has a passive way of saying I'm happy. You say, Yenika Santoshan, for me there is happiness. It's not anything to do with me, it's not something I did, it's not something I accomplished, it's just there. It's just kind of this bubbly, stable state. And you're in your car and you see your fuel gauge go down to quarter and you think got to top up. And all I do is I look at the mountain, I look at my Ramana picture and it goes up to full again. Mm. So. <laughs> nice. 
it's it's just there as my inner fuel and every time I turn to it my tank fills up uh, I still do the inquiry but it's done with such I would say a lack of ambition that's that's is that right I, I do it because I enjoy it I, I do it because it quiets me down I don't sit down and think I must realize the self I want this so badly you know I, I do it in cooperation with the love the joy I feel towards my teachers and that somehow makes everything go a lot more easily there's nothing I really want I have no desire to run around and look for a teacher I have no desire to read a book I haven't read a book now a new book that I didn't have to read because of research for a couple of years now I've stopped reading I have my own inner fuel and when I want to be happy I just plug into it and it's there all the time well that sounds like a much more surrendered state <laughs> with, with, with much less sort of um, right. in, individual manipulation or effort going on yeah. you know just more of a thy will be done kind of a situation right I think all, all the teachers say you need a good mix of bhakti and jnana kind of you the two wings you can fly you can't go anywhere with one you just flap around in circles you, you need a bit of both so I, I find I love to do the inquiry when I feel states of stillness come upon me then I really go into them that's like my treat for the day nice. and, if, and if I'm busy then I my house I've got a Aranachala outside my front window I've got my Ramana pictures everywhere I turn I see one or if I'm working on my, on my computer screen up comes Ramana's teachings and there they are they just put me in that state great did I tell you I don't think I told you this last time I, I went to everywhere I went for years people kept saying write a book teachers like Nisagadatta told me to write, Lakshmanaswami told me to write and when I went up to Lucknow to be with Papaji he basically commissioned me to write and I said you know thank you very much for the offer <laughs> I came here to be quiet, I, I came here to get rid of my mind not to engage my intellect on another project is it good for me to do all this written work? I know I'm not going to say no to you I didn't say no to any of the other teachers who commissioned me but is this a productive way to spend my time in the presence of Inyani should I be quiet or is it okay to spend all day on a computer processing your words and stories and he said any association with the Guru is a blessing he said your luck your blessing in this life is to have all these opportunities to come along to look at and process words of Inyani's he said there's a power in those words and that by looking at them, focusing on them, editing them, arranging them properly you're ac actually accessing the power in those words you're not using your intellect and keeping yourself away from the self you're accessing the Guru and the Guru's power through the words of the Guru that's your niche in life, don't, don't think you've been given a bum deal because everybody else can sit quietly in satsang you're accessing Bhagavan's blessings by processing these words Plus, you got a lot more interaction and personal contact with well, some exactly. of these people than you otherwise exactly. would have. I mean, if, if I think, what are the happiest times I've ever had in my life? It's sitting down with these people one on one and yeah. having carte blanche to talk to them about their lives, their stories. Lakshmana Swami, I sat down for weeks and weeks every morning. He never ever talked to any, he never ever talked about his past or anything, but somehow. 
It right. was wonderful. It was wonderful. I can kind of relate. I mean, I'm not interviewing a, yeah. pop, a papaji every week, right. but I get to talk to some really interesting right. person every week. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's great. So I have quite a few more questions I want to ask okay. you uh, that Fire people away. have sent in, but we have to sort of do relatively short answers uh, so we don't go too long. So let me just fire some at you, and um, then we'll just kind of give it, give me the essence of your answer, and then we'll go on to the next one. So here's here's uh, several from a Gul Nara from. Kazakhstan, however you say that. He says, does Sri Saradama have any message for modern spiritual seekers? Good, that's a good seed from the last story. Saradama was the devotee of Lakshmanaswami who realized the self through devotion to his form. And of all the, when people tell me I'm on the Bhakti path, and they think they're getting somewhere. I, I, I deliberately bring them down, but I always wangle the conversation round to Saudam. She ended up absolutely falling in love with this man, doing japa of his name 20 hours a day. And in the four hours she was sleeping, she'd dream about him for the other four. And he told me that the strength of her devotion was so strong, he didn't sleep for three years. He, he said at three o'clock in the morning, I'd be in there and there'd be a jolt and I could just feel her love and her devotion pouring into me. And I'd go out and say, can you please turn it off for the night? I need to get some, I need to get some sleep. And she said, Swami, I can't. She said, it's, it's there, it's continuous, it's 24 hours a day. But she told me later, she said, don't do a deal with God. This man's asking for a message. She said, don't be devoted to God because you want his grace or you want enlightenment. You have to do it for its own sake. I fell unconditionally in love with this great guru. I didn't want anything from him. I didn't want liberation. All I wanted was to hold on to his name, hold on to his form. That was the bottom line, permanent attention on him all the time. And she said, that's what got me there. He said, she said, everything else is a business transaction. If you go to the guru for a method to attain enlightenment, you're, you're doing a transaction with him. He said, don't do transactions with the guru, just love them unconditionally. So that, that's the message. Her message is, don't go to God, don't go to, to a guru thinking he's going to help you get something. She said, you'll never get it that way. Go there and love him unconditionally. And if, if you've got enough strength in your devotion, you'll get it. Good. Here's another one. Does Sri Lakshmanaswamy have any message for modern spiritual seekers that he could probably pass on through Sri uh, Saradama? Well, he's... His basic message, there's one chapter in the No Mind, I Am The Self book. He has a very simple, unvarying message. I've, I've sat on his darshans innumerable times, and he says the same thing every day. He's not someone who feels he has to say something different every day. He says, you must do self-inquiry. You must take the mind back to its source. Your job is to stop the mind being interested in anything it wants to enjoy or experience, you must teach it to abide in what he calls the effortless thought-free state. He said that's the state, it's still a mind state, where nothing arises that makes you look outside of yourself to get something, enjoy something, experience yourself. He said that's your job, you have to do it by yourself. And once you attain that effortless thought-free state, he said the power of the self through a guru is compelled to take that residual mind back into itself and destroy it. He said, it's not a matter of the guru's choice, it won't be anybody's decision. Once you reach that state through your own effort, 
then the guru through the formless self or through a form will be compelled to finish the work for you. Good. Next one. As we know, Sri Lakshmana Swami and Sri Matru Sarada do not meet with people. Are they still alive? Um, and also there is information that this is because they regard modern spiritual seekers' minds to be of poor condition. The question is, is this true? And if it is, would it be possible to dwell upon the point? I've never met a guru who didn't have a low opinion of most of his devotees. <laughs> <laughs> I told you this story about Maharaj. Oh, why do I waste my time with you people? Papaji was, well, anyway, long story short, I think they have got to where they are through extreme effort, extreme dedication, and if they're not seeing that level of commitment in other people, then they're fully entitled to say, you're not trying hard enough, not wanting it. Lakshmana Swami was a recluse. He hardly met with anyone. I was lucky, I just happened to bump into him in a two or three year window of his life when he was seeing people regularly, but he didn't before and he hasn't since. But what he said is that, I told you this girl, Saradama, came to see him, and he said she compelled me by the force of her devotion to channel the force of the self to grant her liberate. I had no choice. Her devotion was so overwhelming, it wasn't, I couldn't have said yes or no. It had to happen. He said, if I meet anybody else in that same state, I will invite them into my room, I'll lock the door and I won't let them out till they get, till they get it. So it's simply a question of high standards. He, he said, if people come in the same state she was in, then great, welcome. Everybody else, please try harder. <laughs> I guess maybe part of the reason gurus are not really total, overly impressed or at least ex express, you know, like basically say you're all a bunch of idiots, is that it helps keep, keep people humble. I mean, otherwise people might think, hey, I'm pretty cool. I'm sitting here yeah. with this guru. I'm mm -hmm. really up there right. and so on and so forth. Kind mm -hmm. of reminds them of the reality of the situation. Can I say, Kanju Swami told a lovely story. He said, we never got any compliments from Bhagavan. He was there 30 years. He said, you never heard him say anything nice about you until you died. And by then it was too late. You, were, you weren't around. But when somebody died, they'd all go to the hall and he'd start dwelling on your good points and what a nice person you were. But he said it was catch-22. You never got to hear the speech because you were dead, you only told it to other people. <laughs> Maybe you were one of those subtle beings hanging right. around at that point. Um, sorry, this is another guru story. So I wrote, No Mind, I Am The Self, I typed it out, and I gave it to Lakshmana Swami. He never complimented anybody. I mean, really strict, really stern, kind of classic, you know, old school master. And he really enjoyed it. And I could just, I could see him, like, struggling with making a compliment the next day. And then suddenly everybody looked at me, and I'm thinking, why are they looking at me? And then after, when the darshan was out, wasn't that great what he said about you? And I said, he didn't say anything. He said, yes, he did. He said, he really enjoyed it. What a great book. Thank you very much. So somehow, something in him didn't want me to hear the compliment. The one compliment he's given me in my entire life was turning in a good manuscript. Every, everybody else, I didn't even see his lips move. Everybody else who was there heard it and told me afterwards. So the one time he complimented me, he just blanked it out in my perceptions. I didn't hear it. Interesting. This next question reminds me of um, something I wanted to mention when we were talking about Robert Adams, is that in addition to Silence of the Heart, there's a whole treasure trove of audio recordings mm -hmm. of his satsangs that you can download if you search for them. But this question is from Rodrigo in Lisbon, Portugal, who asks, firstly, are there any audio recordings of Ramana? 
This was one of his interesting quirks. He never said no to a camera and he never said yes to a microphone. There are uh, lots and lots of home movies, hundreds, thousands of photos, but every time somebody suggested an audio recording, he always vetoed it. And occasionally he said, my teaching is silence, how are you going to record that? That's interesting, yeah. yeah. And you can kind of get the silence from looking right. at the videos. So I, I, that he had, to me, odd, let's say habits, just things, things that are just inexplicable. He refused ever to sign his name. Mm -hmm. um, he just put a line and people would witness it. And that caused bureaucratic legal problems. Mm. For example, somebody wanted to collect his mail at the post office. It would have been very simple for him to sign a letter. Ramana Maharshi, please give all my letters to my brother. And he wouldn't, he just put a line at the bottom and somebody witnessed it and the postmaster said, I'll accept that if he's illiterate, but he's not, he writes poetry. Right. <laughs> so tell him no one else can collect his mail unless he writes his own name at the bottom. And he refused. I mean, it could have made life so much simpler mm. if he'd wrote, written Ramana at the bottom of that letter. So that there were problems of him, of him not signing, which is to me is just an oddity. Just generally he would take an easy solution we won't cause any friction, we'll sign the name and be done with it. And the same with the audio recording. I don't know why, if you're so welcoming to everybody who turns up with a camera, why you can't say a few words into a microphone, but that was, sure. that was his way. Huh. He was very self-effacing and very egalitarian yeah. from, from what I gather mm -hmm. from your stories. Like, you know, if they tried to put him up on a higher couch so that people could see him easier, he would sit down on the actual floor instead. Mm -hmm. didn't, didn't want any special cushions or anything exactly. else that yeah. everybody else didn't have. Mm -hmm. Here's another question from Rodrigo is, when will your books, David's books, come in digital form like Kindle? Oh, this is a personal embarrassment. I'm, I'm still stuck in the 20th century. I, uh, I have such a backlog of work. I'm actually in Boulder working on that or one aspect of it. I've discovered that uh, FedEx, which is Kinko's as well, they, they can do massive scans. You can give them thousands of pages and they'll just riff through them in a few minutes. Mm -hmm. A lot of my books are so old, I don't even have computer files for them. The stuff yeah. I did in the 1980s, if I want to reprint, I go to my storeroom and I get out these big giant perspex sheets, which, <laughs> which you wrap around a roller and print the way you did in the 1980s. I don't have digital files. so. Mm -hmm. I've got to scan a lot of my books, get digital files, get something in InDesign so I can make hard copies and ebooks. But uh, it's a it's a big job. I mean, I've got a few thousand pages out there. And I've got other things going on. It's just hard work to keep up sometimes. Well, sounds like you're working on it, though. Yeah. Um, here's a question from Elizabeth in the United States. She asks, "What is Ramana's teaching on the emergence of siddhis? Are they a natural aspect of spiritual deepening?" When are they useful and when are they a distraction from the goal of non-dual realization? That's a good question. He persistently discouraged anyone from looking for cities, thought they were always a distraction, but he said, if you realize the self, cities might come, then you can play with them. They're not, they're not going to cause you bondage. But he said, if you have a desire for them, they'll always leave you, lead you astray. I think a lot of his devotees were kind of a little bit interested in that and he always put his foot down on that. He said, don't go there, don't, uh, don't have anything to do with them. So he said, the whole idea, I have done this, I have accomplished this, is your problem. And if you get cities, that's just going to get worse. If you yeah. can 
turn from man to superman because you can do something miraculous you're not going to let go of the eye who did things so miracles would happen around him and he said the true jnani never thinks i have done this i have accomplished this he knows that whatever happens around him has, has happened spontaneously he never takes credit for it he never says i did this did he himself display cities Miraculous things happened around him, but he never ever said, I did this, I was responsible. All kinds of people would come in and say, oh, my grandmother was sick, or my baby was dying, or my brother needed a promotion, and we all prayed to you, and it happened. And he said, oh, really, is that so? He wouldn't even admit that the message had got through, much less that he'd done anything about it. He did tend to downplay miraculous things that happened to him. Some spectacular things did happen and his retellings of the stories tend to downplay the miraculous elements. So he, he, he didn't encourage, he said, if they come after liberation, fine, they'll be used in the right way, but don't go there before you get enlightened. Here's an interesting question. Laura from Monmouth, Oregon uh, asks, remember a little while ago you were talking about how if someone was hitting a mango tree with a stick, Ramana would, mm -hmm. fe Ramana would feel it. So mm -hmm. sh she's asking, Western awakened people, she has awakened in quotes, don't feel themselves as the mango tree don't, uh, when it gets hit with a stick. What's the difference between no self in them and in Ramana? Are there levels of awakening or just unfinished awakenings? I think up to the moment of liberation, there's always a tie to a physical form. This I am the body feeling is what stops you from knowing what self is and stops you from experiencing it and when that tether to the body goes then your awareness expands to all the things around you and you start feeling what's going on around you it could possibly happen in states prior to realization i'm not i'm not going to say one thing or the other can i, I just tell you a saudama story i sure. was with her yeah. with her long ago and she said i'm not going for my walk today and i said why not she said oh yesterday I went out of the ashram gate and there was a husband quarreling with his wife. He got very angry and hit her. And I, I felt the anger and it was so painful and I felt the blow when he hit his wife. I'm not walking past their house until they've resolved their differences. Mm. So this, this just does seem to be a, a common aspect of people in this state. Once you've let go identification with a, a body that has sensations that only terminate at your skin, then if you expand your sense of who you are to everything, then the blows that come to everything else around you, you feel them. Yeah. See uh, all beings in the self and the self in all exactly. beings. Exactly, yeah. Mm -hmm. hmm. Well, I think I've asked all the questions people sent in. Do you have anything more you'd like to say that we haven't covered? Love talking to you. I feel very happy, very quiet. Whenever I talk about my teachers, I get this massive inner glow. You remember, you remember you told this story about Papaji turning up for breakfast with a grin that was ear to ear and his commanding officer said, don't serve him any more drink, he's drunk. Right. The, the more I talk about my teachers, the more drunk I get. So I've loved it. <laughs> I've loved it. Thank you. <laughs> oh, great. Thank you, David. Uh, I appreciate uh, the opportunity and I really uh, appreciate all the questions people have sent in. Okay. It's nice to have that interaction. This is set. This one has set a record in terms of people online. It's about 160, oh, really? 160 people watching live. Are we going live, are we? Oh, yeah, it's live. That's where oh, a lot of these that, questions that are coming from. That was something else. You remember I said I had some photos of people like Maurice Maragona. Mm -hmm. uh, 
Shall we arrange to put them in before yeah, we'll, we'll post put on them YouTube? in for the final version, for the archive okay, version. Good. Yeah. So who, who do I see about that? Oh, I'll, I'll explain to you after we hang okay, up. Fine. Okay. So, uh, so let me just make some concluding remarks. Oh. And um, you've been listening to an interview with David Godman, as you know. Um, and as you also probably know, this is an ongoing series of interviews. So if you enjoy these, you might want to be. You might want to sign up for the email uh, to be notified once a week whenever a new one is posted. You can find that on batgap.com. You'll find archives or indices of all the past interviews organized in different ways. There's an audio podcast of this. You can subscribe on iTunes. There's a link to that. iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, all those different things. Donate button, as I mentioned in the beginning. And some other things. Explore the menus, uh, and you'll find some interesting little tidbits. So thanks for listening or watching. We'll see you next week. Next week I'll be speaking. Well, I always announce this kind of thing, and then things change, and it's not what I announced. But uh, we're planning to interview a fellow named Will Brennan over in Ireland next week. Sounds like an interesting fellow. So stay tuned for that. And thank you again, David. Thank you. Been, good, good talk again. Thank it's, you. It's been enjoying, enjoyable yeah. stirring up the bliss in you. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Giving you an opportunity to become right. intoxicated. Right. <laughs>